Today's episode of Something to Wrestle With is brought to you by fight.tv forward slash StarCast, where by pre-ordering before August 10th, you get an incredible value. Here's what we're talking about. Two stages over four days, more than 20 live shows, over 40 hours of content for one low price, just $79.99. But hurry, this offer won't last forever. It expires on midnight, August 10th. This is an incredible value. Just a ton of shows. The Monday Night War debate with Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff. The roast of Bruce Pritchard. What happened when? With Tony Schiavone and guests, the all-in weigh-ins, an NWO reunion, a War Games retrospective, an empty arena retrospective, a panel on women's wrestling hosted by Medusa, and how about this? Behind the themes with Jim Johnston. More than 20 shows. Check out the full lineup right now at fight.tv forward slash StarCast. And remember, you can enjoy these shows live over Labor Day weekend or on demand with unlimited replays. But hurry, place your order before it's too late. It's fight.tv forward slash StarCast, and it's only $79. And you even get a $20 fight credit you can use towards future purchases. Hey, is all in on fight? This is too good to be true. 40 hours of content for $79.99. Order today. Fight.tv forward slash StarCast. That's F-I-T-E dot TV forward slash StarCast with two R's. Fight.tv forward slash StarCast. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I'm great. Recovering from an 18-hour trip up to uh, Tower, Minnesota, back and forth and all around, man. So it was a wonderful, wonderful week. Well, I tell you what, we've had a wonderful week this week on Patreon because we have been doing a lot of extra bonus content. You managed to stream some footage of you and Dutch Mantel, you and Eric Bischoff, you and Pat Patterson. You even gave everybody a behind-the-scenes look at what we're going to be doing today on SummerSlam. And we uploaded our live show from Baltimore last year. And as if that wasn't enough, we had two bonus episodes. We covered the WrestleMania 30 loss where the Undertaker streak finally came to an end. And we covered Mick Foley's historic world title win that put a lot of butts in the seats from January of 1999. Maybe the biggest crowd reaction of all time. I'm having fun creating this extra bonus content over at patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. Bruce, how about you? Absolutely. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm old folks, I'm technology challenged. So I apologize sometimes if it takes me a little while, but once I get it, we have a little fun with it and everything. And, uh, we're doing the very best that we can just bear with the old man and his technology. I feel like we should mention too, that we finally have information on Scotland and Ireland. Tickets are on sale right now. Go on over to UKSTW.com. That's UKSTW.com. We're coming to see you. Not only will we be in Birmingham or Birmingham, as y'all like to say, we're also going to be in London and Bristol and Liverpool and Ireland and Scotland. Go hit it up right now. UKSTW.com. Bruce, this is my first time in Scotland. I'm looking forward to it. Well, it's uh, my first time in Scotland as well. So it's going to be sharing a first. Been to Ireland before, been to Belfast, and uh, looking forward to that. But uh, Glasgow, here we come. By God, that's going to be a trip. And don't forget, we're also going to be on August 18th at the Gramercy Theater, as you like to say. And I talked to a current WWE superstar this week, and they told me 
that as long as I could get them a t-shirt, they would be happy to do a run in at our live show. And I know you've got a couple of big guests, uh, a former world champion and maybe the best guest we ever had. And now I've got another run in and a former world champion who's, who's coming and uh, going to put us over for a t-shirt. Well, run-ins, walk-ins, by God, you know what? We'll do just about anything for a T-shirt. And those that want to come be a part of the show, you know, we, we can oblige. That I can definitely take care of. It's our home away from home, man. Manhattan. Come see us. BrucePritchard.com is where you can get your tickets. And believe it or not, Bruce, next weekend, you're going to be here in Huntsville, Alabama. I don't have to go anywhere to see you. Rocket City Championship Wrestling is bringing you into the Von Braun Civic Center. You're doing a special Q&A session starting there at 4.30 on Saturday, August 11th. You can pick up your tickets for that one over at Ticketmaster. And then, man, we're back on the road. September 15th, we're in San Antonio. October 21st, we're in Boston. November 17th, we're in Los Angeles. We've got lots of fun shows coming your way. Check it out, brucepritchard.com. And we did have some questions as to whether or not you could actually come see our LA show and see the NXT show. We've got a new start time there. We're going to get started at one o'clock in the afternoon. So you don't have to pick. You can come see us and then go enjoy NXT. We don't want you to have to choose. Let's talk about last week, Bruce. Uh, we covered vengeance 2003. I feel like, uh, we got some mixed reviews here from people who weren't really a fan of this era, but really enjoyed our podcast. Your thoughts? Well, well, my thoughts were for the most part, uh, the positive I got was the positive. The feedback I got was positive because people kind of shared the same sentiment that they enjoyed the show itself and thought that we did a fairly good job of uh, covering that damn thing. So I got good feedback. It was a lot of fun and I enjoyed the show. Well, you're going to enjoy the show that you're going to be able to put on. Thanks to our friends over at Ageless Male Max. And Bruce, I know you've been taking this for a while because you wanted to give your gimmick the hot tag. And this is helping you boost some of your total testosterone. They've got a patent pending formula that has an ingredient that helps you boost that total testosterone. And it promotes greater increase in muscle size and twice the reduction in body fat as compared to just exercise alone. But right now, Bruce, we've got a special offer for all of our something to wrestle listeners, right? That's right. You can take your manhood to the max by trying your first 30 day bottle absolutely free. All you have to do is pay shipping and handling. We're not talking 10, 15. We're talking an entire 30 day supply free. All you have to do is text the word slam to 797979. Finally, the formula that boosts total testosterone. And if your results with Ageless Male Max are too intense, please decrease the use. But get your free bottle right now. Text SLAM, S-L-A-M, to 797979. That's S-L-A-M to 797979. Message and data rates may apply. Well, what else applies is a little heartfelt situation here to get us started this week because man, they say deaths come in threes and we got hit pretty hard in the wrestling world this week. We lost Brickhouse Brown. We lost Brian Christopher and we lost friend of the show, Nikolai Volkov. You probably had an opportunity to meet most of these guys. I mean, certainly you work closely with two of them. Uh, tell us your thoughts when you see all this bad news roll in in the same 24 hour period. Well, I, I was out of town when, when I got the, the news and Eric Bischoff and I, 
met for lunch and we heard the news about Nikolai Volkov and, and Brian Christopher both passing. Then later on that day, got hit with the news Brickhouse Brown. And, and I worked with all three of these guys over the years. And Nikolai, uh, man, what can you say? He was uh, one of the true, like, true greats of, of our business. He, he went so far back, and I'd known Nikolai since I was a kid from the times that he had come into Texas and then got to work with him in later years. And we just saw him in Baltimore not long ago, and it was uh, great to – at least we got to see him within last year, and that was fantabulous to say the very least. Uh, man, Brickhouse Brown, I knew Brick from when he first – Broke into the business as, as a young man and, and came through and was was working in Texas with the Mid South Territory and um, great great guy, man too young and got cancer. You know, d- did you hear the story about Brickhouse when they thought he had passed a little bit earlier and he kicked out and and the nurses had come in and, and he had flatlined and everybody came in and said, hey man, uh, he's gone and then. His mother didn't want him to take him away right away. And, and he was, she was laying there with her, with her son. And all of a sudden he opened his eyes and said, mom, I'm hungry. And he stayed with us a few more days. So, you know, typical brick house, man. He's not ready to go till he's ready to go. The false finish. And, uh, what's that? The false finish. The false finish. That's right, man. It was going on his terms. And, uh, last tragically, Brian Christopher, 46 years old, just way too young. And, and my condolences and um, thoughts go out to the to the Lawler family, Jerry Lawler's son, but I also know his, his brother Kevin, and um, just way too young and an extremely tragic and, and sad, sad ending. I hate to hear those things. Yeah, it really is unfortunate because he's a guy who I think a lot of people assume was much older. You know, he's just a handful of years older than an AJ Styles, but it certainly feels like he's from another generation. But that shows you just how good he was, how early in his life. I mean, he was incredibly young to have all that success. And unfortunately, maybe some of that played into what became a life of uh, struggles and challenges. And to hear that he passed away the way he did. I mean, that's gotta be devastating. Nobody wants to hear that that's the end for a loved one, right? No, you never want to hear that. And, and just sad, you know, it's, it was completely unexpected. And when you hear those things out of the blue and you got to scratch your head and you look around and you wonder why, and makes you cherish everything that you do have around you and, and appreciate the things that you, that you have. And it's just, um, was way too soon and he'll be greatly missed. Um, you know, again, my, my heart goes out to the Lawler family is his wife. And, and I, it's just, man, it's, whew, I don't know what else to say. Well, certainly thoughts and prayers to Jerry Lawler who's certainly a friend of the show. And, you know, I can't imagine what he's going through right now and how this must be to sort of process and feel and we'll keep them in our prayers and you know try to remember the good times man because brian christopher is a guy who always entertained me i mean i know that you were really good friends or at least you know very good acquaintances with all three of these guys but brian christopher is a guy who was sort of my era and it is really really weird to hear that 
you know, we've lost another one that, that I sort of grew up on. who's not that much older than me and he just lived so much life. And obviously I think his upside was always so incredible. We've talked about him here on the show before that the dude just had charisma dripping off of him and could cut a promo and was a good wrestler and, you know, had heritage in the business, but as they say in wrestling, the demons got a hold of him and it doesn't feel like they ever turned loose. And it's a shame. He's almost like, um, you know, one of those, what could have been moments. And, um, I don't know. It's hard to, uh, find a way to transition, but we are going to uh, talk about SummerSlam 1997, which is why we're here. Uh, I watched this show back for the first time in a long time. And I remembered that this was really one of my favorite pay-per-views of all time. And, uh, I know I, I hype stuff up here and say how good some of this stuff ages, but other times, well, I'll call a spade a spade when something's not good. And maybe this is me being a bit of a Homer Bruce, because 97, as we've said before here on the show is my very favorite year in the history of my wrestling fandom, but you watched it back for the first time in a long time this week too. What'd you think? I thought that it was a damn solid show. You know, it had some parts of it that weren't the best in the whole world, but the overall show in, to me, it was the telling of the stories. I thought that the stories were told brilliantly and it it was a good time in the business where there were a lot of things happening and we were doing some untraditional things that were working. So it was, um, it was a fun time because it was exciting. Never really knew exactly what the hell was around the next corner. Well, let's talk about, you know, how we got here. We should set the stage, I guess, before we talk about the actual pay-per-view, the pay-per-view though, went down on August 3rd, 1997. So as you're listening right now, it was 21 years ago at the continental airlines arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. And it's the first event from East Rutherford since like SummerSlam 89. So it's been quite a while eight years or so. And this is mainly because of the high taxes that wrestling events had to pay in New Jersey during these years. So McMahon just sort of took the show on the road and just wouldn't run there. But then in 1997, then New Jersey governor, Mrs. Christine Whitman lifted those taxes, which led to the WWF returning to New Jersey for televised events. And you may remember that this particular issue is what got a lot of people in the wrestling business upset on February 10th, 1989, Vince McMahon appeared in front of the state of New Jersey Senate and said that wrestling should be defined as quote, an activity in which participants struggle hand in hand, primarily for the purposes of providing entertainment to spectators rather than conducting a bona fide athletic contest. And that upset a lot of old school wrestling people. Did it not? Yeah, and I think that was absolutely silly because when you go back in time and you look at people, the traditionalists and the old shooters, if you will, old promoters like Roy Shires in San Francisco and Vern Gagne in the AWA, who had done the same thing with athletic commissions in their areas where they ran that the athletic commissions were taking what they considered an unfair portion of the gate. And they had done the exact same thing in front of their states and got the taxes abolished back in the time. Vince was doing it in New Jersey, just had a lot more eyeballs on us at the time. And it wasn't a revelation. Guess what? The business was work. It was then, it was now, and it was silly that they were taking a 5% cut 
off of everything we did, and then wanted five percent of the pay-per-view revenue and television contracts. It no, we'll just not run there. <sighs> it's crazy to think about that. You know, once upon a time, people could get away with that. But kudos to Vince McMahon to uh, standing strong. Talk me through how this you know return to New Jersey comes to be. Christine Whitman. Uh, is actually going to appear in front of the live crowd. Well, I'm sure we'll cover that when we get to the actual pay-per-view, but they make a big to-do about this, and it feels like Vince had to have some sort of a relationship with her. How do you recall this coming together? Well, it was a big big to-do because we chose not to run our big events there because of this, and they saw that they were losing not just um, – the pay-per-view revenue, they were, they were losing live event revenue as well. So we just said, Hey, you know what? We'll run somewhere else. We can run across in Pennsylvania. We can run across in uh, New York just as easily. Don't need to run New Jersey. If y'all want to be dicks about it. Well, that's real easy, man. We can go and do our business elsewhere. And we did, you know, did the same thing in Kentucky. They were pretty difficult to deal with and just said, we would rather do business elsewhere than do business in an unfair situation and there were you know different different things that people just didn't understand where the athletic commission would would want to charge tax on tax which is against the law and just a lot of crazy things that when you bring it out in the public and people see it they go well that's pretty silly well let's talk about what you guys were doing in public because you guys are riding high after canadian stampede we've covered that show in our archives it was your july 1997 in your house pay-per-view and it's one of the best shows of the year you should go out of your way to watch that show and listen to our podcast on it which is available now in the archives at something but you guys had to be feeling like you were hitting on all cylinders here is that fair to say business was picking up it had been a rough time but business was, was starting to pick up. So yeah, it was, people were digging the creative. It's interesting though, because although it feels like you're on such a high compared to 96, it hasn't really been reflected in business. I mean, it has a little bit, but very nominally, here's what we mean. Uh, average attendance from 95 to 96. And we're talking about August over August or July over July, rather 3,275 fans in 95 up to 5486 in 96 so a huge jump but i always thought a big a bigger jump was 96 to 97 that's not the case 97 is averaging 5615 so a little higher than the 5486 but not a ton your average gate by the way in 95 is around 44000 it's up to 80 grand in 96 but it's 10% higher in 97 at 88 so it is higher but not nearly the jump that you saw from 95 to 96 but oddly enough, business is slipping in two other areas. Cable ratings are down. They went from a 2.03 in 96 down to a 1.6 in 97. And then your average pay-per-view revenue, that went down too, going from a 2.19 to a 1.6. So a huge... Yeah, yeah but you're also you're adding more pay-per-views, which brings the average down as well. You're adding more pay-per-views for less money. And I think when you take the average of the lesser pay-per-views, I think that it probably, it probably remain, it'd probably be the same statistical, you know, percentage wise going up as far as dollars. I know you're going to dig your heels in here, but y'all had pay-per-views every month in 96. So 96 to 97, you were still doing in your houses. There was no difference there. Okay. Um, 
but here's the thing that I'm excited to talk about creatively with this show. I mean, first of all, business is up. We're not going to argue that more fans are interested in the product. You're selling more tickets at the gate. Merchandise is flying off the fucking shelves. That Austin 316 shirt is a huge hit, but creatively you're firing on all cylinders. You've got Bret Hart with this anti-American business. That's really taken fire. Stone cold is white hot. You've still got the undertaker. You've still got Shawn Michaels. I mean, this card is so stacked that Hunter and Mankind open the card. That's where we are. And you've got to feel like, you know, you're, you're on the right track. And I know we, we give him a lot of shit here on the show, but a lot of this was because of Vince Russo. Is it not? Uh, Vince was kind of starting in the creative here a little bit. This was still mainly me and Cornette and Vince and Vince Russo was, was coming in here and helping out quite a bit too, but it wasn't all Vince Russo at this point. Well, I wasn't saying that it was all Vince Russo, but it does feel like he's got his fingerprints on some of this stuff. 97, of course, is the year where we see the relaunch of the heart foundation and, uh, the central storyline for most of this show is us versus Canada. And that has allowed Austin to sort of flourish. And during the summer of 97, you've got back and forth raws where you're in America one week and Steve Austin is a super baby face and you're in Canada the next week. And Steve Austin is a super heel because it's all based on where are you at? Are, are is the heart foundation, the, the hero or are they the villain? It's one of the first times something like that's been done before, right? Well, it was a happy accident. It was, we were booking more Canadian dates because we were, we had an office in Canada and it was giving us a huge break in Canada and it was also easing up the television situation in Canada. So those were booked. Those dates were booked well in advance and it was a happy accident that we had a, you know, Canada versus the USA that we fell into with Brett when we started seeing these different reactions in the different places that we went. And it was Brett favoring the Canadian audience more when he was in Canada that I think that the United States audience was kind of going, hey, you know, screw you, because they thought Brett was one of them. But Brett played to that Canadian audience and we fell into it, really. It wasn't planned. Well, what was planned is, um, you guys running a SummerSlam special and it aired on the USA network on July 14th and it gets a 3.75 rating. So pretty good. But what's interesting about this. And the reason I mention it is because you guys are showing highlights from SummerSlam for years, which, Hey, good for you. But it winds up featuring a lot of guys who are in WCW. You even show Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage teaming up to take on Ted DiBiase and Andre, the giant, obviously. Three of the four of those at this point are over in WCW. We've also going to see clips of Elizabeth, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper, Mr. Perfect, Scott Hall, Lex Luger, Kevin Nash, even Mean Gene and Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone. And all of them are featured in this, but they're on the other channel with WCW. Did somebody not raise their hand and say, I don't know if this is a good idea. No, it was a conscious effort to do so. They were big stars on WCW. They were making money for them. They had made their names for the most part in the WWF. So why not utilize the footage and show where they came from and when they first became stars by highlighting what they had done at SummerSlam and the WWF? And, and no, it was a calculated move and one that 
we definitely knew what the hell we were doing. And it wasn't a, oh, my God, don't do that because they're with the other guys. It was, all right, let's use let's use it to our advantage as best we can. By comparison, um, I think everybody else, I mean, WCW would do stuff like this and Memphis would do stuff like this where they would show old clips of guys who used to be here in a way where you were sort of burying them. And even in a different era, you guys would do that with when you would sort of mock the nacho man and the huckster and things like that. Was there ever any consideration to like revoicing over the commentary just to shit on the guys? No, because it was a historical look back on SummerSlam and it was, we, we wanted to be above it. So it's like, Hey, let's, let's use them. Let's show how great Hulk Hogan used to be. That was the thinking behind it. Let, let's show what these guys used to be. Let's show what you fell in love with. And hopefully maybe you're going to miss it a little bit and you can see the new stars that we're going to create. And this is where they all start. And that was more or less the thinking behind it. But yes, it was discussed about, well, we could certainly talk and, contrast and compare to Hulk Hogan then to today, but why didn't need to let's talk a little bit about what they were doing on the other channel in July. They had Dennis Rodman make his wrestling debut at bash at the beach, but I'm mentioning this because there's rumor and innuendo that Dennis was offered a spot to team with gold dust at WrestleMania and then later to wrestle gold dust at SummerSlam. And eventually he decides to take the WCW offer. Allegedly you guys were offered him like a million bucks and WCW was offering him almost double that. What do you remember of the idea of, Hey, what if we got Dennis Rodman to do something at WrestleMania and SummerSlam? Dennis was red hot. Dennis was the bad boy of the NBA making a lot of noise and was very controversial at the time. I want to say his book had just come out, but Man, he was he was the hot he was the Kardashians, you know, of, of that era. So we were looking outside to bring people in to get attention to get more eyeballs on us. And Rodman was brought up, and I guess WCW had heard about this, and they, you know, went in and they offered Dennis another deal that he chose. I the numbers are probably inflated, but I know that he was offered something to come in, and he was talked about if he would like to come in and do something with us. So let's talk a little bit about the July 14th raw, because this goes down in San Antonio and the entire card for SummerSlam starts to take shape here. Um, we open up with a heart foundation interview with Vince and one by one, we start stacking on the stipulations. The idea is if Brett doesn't beat the undertaker for the title, he can never wrestle in the United States again. If the British bulldog loses to Ken Shamrock, he has to eat a can of dog food. If Brian Pillman can't beat Goldust, he has to wrestle the next night on raw in a dress. If Austin doesn't beat Owen, he has to kiss his ass in the ring. And if any member of the heart foundation loses Neidhart gets his goatee shave the next night on raw. Now, of course we know Neidhart didn't wind up shaving the goatee, although I guess, according to the stipulation, he was supposed to chat me up. What do you remember about this promo where we sort of stack up all the stipulations, whose idea that was, why you felt it was necessary. And then what the hell happened? Why didn't Neidhart shave the goatee? Well, first of all, the one thing that we made sure to do was had the talent basically 
make those stipulations. Now, we reiterated them, but they were never really, the WWF says if Bret Hart loses, Bret made the statement. So it was, all right, Bret, are you going to stay true to your word? You say if you lose this match that you'll never wrestle in the United States again. Bret starts to, whoa, whoa, I didn't say, well, no, here's exactly what you said. And so the talent was putting their foots in their mouth. The talent was making the stipulation almost like a bet. And it was, you know, Vince was very particular in, in not wanting to, your perception was it was over stipulated, but yet it was nothing official. The loser of this match, you know, has to eat dog food. The loser of this match uh, has to shave his goatee. The loser, it was agreements by the talent that were made. And, and it was just something that he did intentionally by letting the talent kind of make those, if I lose, I'll do this and then throwing it back in their face. Talking about the, um, the Nightheart situation, Meltzer would write well after the show. Uh, the situation with him is that before coming to WWF, he had signed an exclusive contract with universal championship wrestling out of deer park, New York, and the WWF wasn't aware of that. Of course, when the WWF was told that they wanted Nightheart to legally get out of the deal before they put him back in the mix. So the stipulation about Nightheart shaving his beard on raw was dropped. Is that the way you remember it? Something like that. It, you know, Stu had called us. And Stu, <laughs> eh. I feel like every time we talk about Nightheart, it starts with, well, Stu called us. You know, Stu had a soft spot for Jim, and, and Vince had a soft spot for Jim. And uh, the big uh, the fucking rhino, can you, can, you, can you put the fucking rhino in to do something? Help, help him out, Vince, if you can do something. And Vince always would. In this particular situation, I, I guess it was UCW. I don't remember the exact name of the company, but Jim had signed a contract with them for a television deal. I don't know that they even ever did television, <laughs> you know, the other group, but they had a contract that Jim apparently had signed that wouldn't allow him to work television for anyone else. And they came and they threw it up. So Vince said, all right, get out of it because when we ask you one of the things, when you come in, do you have a contract? Are you, are you able to even talk to us right now? That was the very first thing out of my mouth. Whenever I talked to talent, Hey, where are you contractually? Do you have a contract? You got to deal with anybody. And if they say yes, you can have a conversation right there. You can't, can't go any further. Nice talking to me. Do you call me when your deal's up or you can't talk to me. So let's get back to this raw in this same episode. We see Austin come out, Shamrock, the Patriot. Uh, and then I think even Vince McMahon here would introduce the Patriot as Dale Wilkes, the Patriot Sid and Shawn Michaels all come out and Sean had been gone for a while, but this raw is in San Antonio. So I guess it makes sense for him to appear. What do you remember about him popping in at this time? Because he had been sort of out of the scene for a minute. He had been, and, and it was the infamous, you know, knee knee surgery too, where Sean was still out due to injury, if you will. So there was a lot of skepticism out there on Sean, but there was, this was the time and, and Vince had been talking to Sean about making a return. So this was an opportunity being in San Antonio in a hometown crowd where we felt people were going to give the right reception for Sean and thought that was a good time to reintroduce him. Was this also the whole unsafe working environment bullshit? 
after he and Brett tangled up. Didn't that happen in June of 97? No, that didn't. Was it? No, I don't think that had happened yet. Maybe it did. Yeah, it might have because that was back with the sunny stuff. So I think it, it might have. Yeah, it had because, you know, I, I feel like we're giving a spoiler here, but I mean, she had us 21 years ago. Brett's going to win the world title at the end of this. And had he not done God that, damn it, Conrad, you wouldn't have had to screw him out of the world title. But as you would tell us, Brett screwed Brett. Brett did screw Brett. Um, we also see Paul bear on this episode say that he's going to, um, he's going to reveal that Kane is actually alive. And we've, we've talked about that a little bit. I'm sure we're going to cover it more when we get to a Kane episode. We get some uh, undercard action here with Takamichinoku pinning Yoshihiro Tajiri years before Tajiri was a big deal in ECW. And Meltzer's reporting that they're going to make a major play to sign Taka to a full-time contract because they're so impressed with his, his showing here. Why was Vince so high on Taka? Vince wasn't high on Taka. I was high on Taka. And I was high on Taka because of, of Paul Heyman, of all people. We had talked about doing a light heavyweight division, looking for someone that would really be able to spotlight that division. And Paul Heyman was one that told me, he says, get Taka Michinoku. He's unbelievable. Paul had brought him in for some ECW shows, sent me a tape, uh, fell in love with him. So it was, I was wanted to do something with Taka. Um, and Vince wanted to do some with the light heavyweight division. So we, we went after Taka, but that was all Paul Heyman, man. And Victor Quinones is the one who helped orchestrate the signing with Taka Michinoku. And he was also, Victor was also the one who was booking to Jerry at the time in Puerto Rico and thought that Jerry would be a good fit to kind of spotlight Taka's abilities. We also see on this raw where Shawn Michaels is doing an interview, basically begging McMahon to be a part of the SummerSlam show. So he can see the undertaker beat Bret Hart and send him packing. But behind the scenes, this is the week where Shawn Michaels was coming off of the wrestle vessel cruise. You guys didn't do this very often, a handful of times, but you tried this cruise concept and WCW did one too, where they called it the bruise cruise. And now all these years later, you know, what's old is new again. Chris Jericho is doing a rock and wrestling cruise over Halloween. What'd you think of the wrestle vessel? I don't know when we'll talk about that again. Any good stories? Did you ever do a wrestle vessel? I did two wrestle vessels. I did not do the first one. This was the first one that we ever did. And Jim Ross had the honors of going on that one. And then I did the next two, but it was, yeah, they were a lot of fun, but it was always the bet was with myself and Dave Hebner, who was the other agent on the cruise. The bet was, who are we going to get the call on first? So which talent is going to either get out of line, get in some kind of trouble or have some kind of issue. And both times I was on the cruise, we weren't even out of the port before we were getting calls from our liaison on the ship saying, um, could, could you guys help us out with the situation? We have a situation with the captain and, and a seven foot giant. Could you guys help us out? And it was, it was fun, but it was far from relaxing to be on the damn thing. Why was it far from relaxing? Cause you were working the whole time. 
because I'm working the whole time and trying to make sure that nobody's nobody's getting into arguments with fight or arguments with fights, arguments or fights with fans, and making sure that everybody's happy and getting everybody to the right place at the right time in the evening, making sure they have their private time, making sure that they're at appearances where they need to be and what they need to do, um, cutting promos on Mickey Mouse, just things like that, getting people in the, uh, in the stage shows fired, just all kinds of fun stuff. Well, you got to tell us some of that stuff. I mean, who'd you get fired? Why'd you tell Mickey mouse to fuck off? Tell me about a fan. Okay. Well, Mickey's an asshole. First of all, I waited in line with my kids for 30 minutes to get their picture taken with Mickey and three people before they were going to get their pictures taken with Mickey. We, they got replaced by chip and Dale, the fucking chipmunks. And Mickey just walked away. So I cut a promo on the guy running the line about how to run a line. And then I followed Mickey into the characters only dressing room and cut a promo on a mouse. Why didn't you just get a picture? I got a picture with Chip and Dale, but I, they wanted a picture with Mickey Mouse. You- and then from that point on, every time that Mickey saw me on the rest of the cruise, he came over and took a picture with my kids. It was a stressful situation, Conrad. Do you realize you're that? on a ship? There's nowhere to go, and there's rodents running around. You got mice, you got chipmunks, you got Snow White and seven little short people running around. It's stressful, okay? Are you not allowed to say dwarves? Oh yeah, they were dwarves. I guess you can't say dwarves. I, I, I man, I'm trying to be politically correct. So I called not. them little people. So chat me up. You said there were fights? Uh, no, there were, you know, just, no, there weren't. There were arguments. There was one situation where we were in the lounge one night and they had a live band and they asked for, uh, suggestions from the crowd. Well, the only people that were in the bar was us. So after each song, we would chant Garth Brooks and they would never play Garth Brooks. So we made a few suggestions as to some songs they could sing. But after each song, we would chant Garth Brooks. And so finally, the woman that was singing cut a promo on us. And right about that time, the head of the cruise came by and said, How's, how are things going? We said, hey, we were just asking politely for some Garth Brooks songs. And this woman called us imbeciles and, and immature and all this other stuff. And she just disappeared from the ship. I think they threw her overboard. You've always been a tattletale bitch. Have you not? I'm not the one that did it. I'm just saying I was with the group that did. You're cutting a promo on Mickey mouse. And then I did cut a promo on Mickey and then trying to take over a show. I mean, if a wrestling fan was doing that at a wrestling show, you'd want to throw them out. (laughs) Yeah. And, but yet you become that fucking mouse motherfucker. There you go. That's what I'm Goddamn even. little bitch, big eared motherfuckers. Goddamn whore girlfriend, Minnie. Fuck her. She's a whore. Okay. Motherfucker. Thank you. Let's talk about the setup here for what's going to be a big part of our opening match. During the summer, we see a sit down shoot style interview with Mick Foley. And he's talking to good old Jr. And he's talking about his upbringing and how as a youngster, he wanted to be dude love. And we see video footage of him cutting promos as this dude love character, which is a heartthrob baby face. And Mick wrote in his book, I was surprised one evening to hear Bruce Pritchard say, you know, we're going to make a dude love shirt. 
Were you the first person who saw that? Well, yeah, I was probably, I was one of the first people that ever heard the story of dude love as far as I know in, in that dressing room. So we were in Toronto and it was myself, Sean Michaels. Uh, I think Hunter might've been there. Pat Patterson. I don't know if Taker was there, but it was after, it was after the matches and Mick was talking about something. He was talking to Sean and Sean was saying something along the lines of, you know, Cactus Jack and, uh, mankind and that type of character. And Mick made a comment along the lines of goes, well, Sean, growing up, I always wanted to be somebody like you. I wanted to be the hot baby face that all the girls loved. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I did promos and my friend and, and he had his, his friend like Jim Cornette had Kenny Bolin. Mick had his friend, whatever his name was. They used to play wrestle and cut promos. And he goes, my name was dude love. And I, I, I saw myself in, in my eyes, I was you. And we all got a good laugh out of it. Mick telling this story. I went back and shared the story with Vince. I said, can you imagine this deal? And, and Mick Foley, the human being has such an interesting story that that's how the three faces of Foley came about. And we started going into the Mick Foley, the cactus Jack, and then eventually dude love that it was so damn rich. Every kid can imagine being in their basement and cutting promos and being some character they create. So I was like, yeah, we're going to do dude love. And he thought I was ribbing him. He thought I was just completely fucking with him. He wrote in his book that he received a surprise phone call from Vince who said, Hey pal, how would you like to be dude love? And he didn't know what to say. He assumed he meant for the next pay-per-view and Vince said, no, I mean, from now on. And of course, Foley was really digging the way mankind was going. And he says that Vince said, I'm not saying we can't ever go back there, but fans will love this dude love story. It's such a great PR story. Regis and Kathy Lee would love something like this. You know, children will love him. Fans who already love mankind will love him. And people won't be afraid to bring their girlfriends to the matches because dude won't threaten them. He's a safe sex symbol, which is hilarious to me. Um, Vince would say, we'll play it up huge girls, pyro. We're even going to team you up with Steve. And here you go. The summer of love was born and he gets new entrance music and the whole deal. When you guys first roll out, dude, love, does anybody think who booked this shit or is this a rib? At first, I think Mick thought it was a rib, but once, once you saw how he played it and how over the top it was. Damn. It, it was like, you know, you're getting two characters for the price of one, three characters for the price of one, four characters. When you throw in Mick, um, it was, it was interesting storytelling and it was something people could now identify with Mick Foley because I think everybody could relate to that guy that wanted to be somebody else growing up. And now he's realizing his dream. I feel like we should mention here too, that this is, um, the same episode overall where Sid collapses backstage and he's rushed to a hospital. Uh, he's fresh off of a car accident and a lot of people are concerned about that. Uh, he's apparently dropped a little bit of weight because he hasn't been able to train like he normally does. And Meltzer would write the belief right now is that the match with Vader is almost surely off of SummerSlam. It hasn't been announced, but I believe Goldust versus Pillman will be taken from the free for all and put on the main card in its place. 
Can you confirm the original idea was to have Sid and Vader at SummerSlam 97, but Sid collapsing here, maybe put that match in jeopardy? I, I really don't remember what the match was slated for him. I remember Sid collapsing and everybody just kind of being worried as far as what the back issues were going to be with him from that resulting from that car accident and how long term it was going to be. Uh, I, like I said, I know he was pulled from SummerSlam. I don't remember what the hell the match was, though. It was reported in the Observer that you guys were paying $8,000 a week to have your show syndicated in the New York market on Channel 31. And obviously you're paying for a much more prime time than say ECW was because they're getting it at a fraction of the price, but also a much smaller audience. Does 8,000 a week sound about right for syndicating a show in New York city 21 years ago for New York? That's probably about right. That's uh, that's pretty incredible. You guys are making money moves here in this era. Uh, Meltzer would report trying to save money, dude. Absolutely. You would report that, uh, you're going to stop taping or stop doing raw live every Monday. You're going to go to a tape schedule. So it'll be one on one off. And you also announced that the in your house concept is being dropped. And instead of doing two hour shows, you're going to do three hour shows and you're going to go 29 95. Now that doesn't mean that you won't call them in your house. Eventually you get away from that, but for the rest of the year, and actually I guess a couple of times into 1998. You're going to keep this in your house name going, but the concept of them being a two hour show at a reduced cost is gone. And now we're going to a three hour show at 29.95. That makes a huge difference financially for the company. Chat me up about why that change was necessary and who had the idea, because certainly the WWE does this now where there may be fewer fans who are watching, but those who are watching are spending more money. The idea behind it was we were already paying. It, it didn't make a difference cost on our end to do a two-hour pay-per-view or do a five-hour pay-per-view. The production costs were the same. Uh, there, the you weren't paying for airtime on on pay-per-view channels. That was air, you know. And and they were all starting. You know, you look at the the old Direct TV guides. There was a new movie starting every thirty minutes. They just added more space on there. So. Our cost was the same. However, if we increased the content by an hour, we could then charge that extra money for that three-hour pay-per-view. And we felt that we were leaving money on the ground by only doing a two-hour show every month when we could be making more doing a three-hour show at no additional cost to us. So it's just simple mathematics for us to increase the price and increase it to an hour or another hour. Well, I tell you what, uh, maybe you're looking to save a little money. You should go to lightstream.com because the macho man would tell you that over at lightstream.com slash wrestle, you get an even better deal than you might normally. If you're looking to do some credit card consolidation, right? Macho. Uh-huh. And it's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. That's right. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with auto pay. Now, lower the average credit card interest rate of over 18% APR. That's right. That's crazy. You could get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Uh Uh-huh. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. 
So say goodbye to high interest credit cards this summer and start saving with Lightstream. Oh, yeah. Check it out right now. Lightstream.com slash wrestle is subject to credit approval. Rate includes a half percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit Lightstream.com for more information. But we're telling you, this is the way to go. The only way to get this discount is to use that promo code. It's lightstream.com slash wrestle. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash wrestle. You'd be glad you did. Let's also talk about how this business move to change the pay-per-view really affects a lot of things because we just talked about how you've got your pay-per-view buy rate going down. So even if fewer people buy your pay-per-view, but the price goes up, you can return to your old profitable levels. And you guys even tried instead of a 2795 pay-per-view price, which is what WCW was doing. You tried a 3495 price tag for WrestleMania, even though it had previously been $29.95, but that doesn't seem like a big deal, but that extra five bucks, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of times, it really, really adds up. And a lot of people believe that this timeline sort of makes sense. Let's remind you here that we're talking about late July, early August, when all these changes are happening. And we know that Vince is going to go to Brett in September before the Madison square garden raw, where Austin would give McMahon a stunner and cactus Jack would return. And that's where he would break the news. We can't afford your contract. So behind the scenes with them adjusting the number of hours, the pay-per-views are and the pricing for the pay-per-views and cutting raw to every other week, all the cost cutting measures are there, right? Bruce. Absolutely. We were, I mean, Dude, we were even flying in on Saturday nights, all of us, when you looked at the totality of bringing this large group of people in, it was worth it to pay the 50 to $40 or whatever it was for a hotel for a Saturday and a Sunday night. So that's a hundred bucks to save several hundred dollars on a Saturday night stay. So we were bringing people in on Saturday nights for Monday and Tuesday television tapings to save money. And it was every, every area that we could look at cutting, we were cutting. Just transportation alone, Meltzer would say could range 15,000 to 30,000 to just get the crew in there. So by, by staggering these tapings, you're going to save a boatload of cash there and you're going to do the Tuesday shows where they're within driving distance. So you don't have any new, new flight expenses and they're still doing this now. I think a lot of people maybe don't pay attention to this, but like on Monday night, SmackDown's running a house show and then they're going to drive to wherever TV is on Tuesday. So they're still using what they've learned here in 97 as a cost cutting measure. They're still using it today to keep costs down. And Meltzer would write, there are numerous signs of late that the WWF is taking the financial situation very seriously. For example, the July 21st show in Halifax, Nova Scotia, there were many regulars who were always brought to raw tapings that weren't flown in as a cost-saving measure. 
And a lot of guys were featured in taped segments as opposed to being brought in to do live new material. And this is interesting. It's exactly what you just said. Those who were flown in, which we believe includes Vince McMahon himself, were brought in on Saturday as opposed to a Sunday, just so they could get the cost savings of a Saturday stayover flight. And a lot of people who don't travel may not realize this, but if you stay over on a Saturday night, then your flight is usually a little cheaper because a lot of the airline travel is for business purposes and they want to try to incentivize weekend stays as opposed to business travel. So Saturday night, if you fly in on a Saturday and then fly back on a Monday, it's a little cheaper than if you were to fly in on a Sunday, right, Bruce? Absolutely. And it's a huge savings. And we went through and again, went through with a fine tooth comb, looking at who needed to come to TV, who didn't need to be at TV. And if you weren't needed at TV, you were no longer going to be there. There had been an awful lot of fat and it was just based on the way that we had always done business. So we would always bring extras and extra people to TV to make sure that we had all of our bases covered. And it just came down to a dollars and cents of, man, if you're not needed, you're not coming. And if you are coming, you're going to have to sacrifice some things. And like I said, you're going to have to come in on a Saturday night and spend the night in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So the new television format would kick in on September 8th, which would mean you'd have television tapings on alternate Mondays and Tuesdays. Like the September 8th raw from Cincinnati would be live, but instead of taping the next week on the 15th, they would actually go ahead and tape it the next day on the 9th and the shotgun show that was taped on the 9th wouldn't air until the 20th and they would continue that. But the big change that I remember is them moving the show back one hour. And that started on August 4th, the day after this SummerSlam. So I'm in the central time zone for years and years. Raw was seven to nine, but then you guys moved it and it became eight to 10 or in the Eastern time, nine to 11. Why the decision to move an hour later? Is that a WWF idea? Is that a USA request? What do you recall? I think it was a combination of both and USA wanted us to be more competitive with nitro and they wanted, they felt that by moving us later, First of all, you have the FCC standards and practices, if you will, that you could get away with a little more risque in a later time frame from that 9 to 10 or 10 to 11 uh, time zone on the East Coast. So it was, it was basically something that USA and us, we both wanted to do and felt it was a good move. Let's talk a little bit about the next raw, because we see a promo from Brackus and I don't know when we'll talk about Brackus again, but I feel like now's as good of a time as any, what can you tell us about Brackus? Well, you're right. We won't be talking very much about Brackus or be talking about Brackus, uh, very much ever again. Brackus was a huge bodybuilder from Germany who came in and he was someone that Vince had met and, or Shane had actually met him and Shane was very high on him. He looked like a brick shit house. He was so wide that he had to turn sideways to fit through most doors. He was just a big guy that they felt we could train and that they could turn him into a wrestler. The only problem was, was that, uh, his name was Occam Albrecht and Occam was a bodybuilder. Occam really didn't have a desire 
to be a professional wrestler. So he didn't have that love and that passion for the business. And it just try as try as we did, you know, Tom worked with him every day. My brother, Tom was, was training Mark Henry and Occam at the same time. And I, I told the story to Mark Henry the other day where he remembered when Mark broke his leg, Occam and Mark Henry shared an apartment in Stanford and Mark, this big 400 pound monster with a broken leg can't move. And he has to ask, ask Occam to get him food. And Mark says, man, would you please go to McDonald's? He goes, I will go to McDonald's, but I will get you grilled chicken and no milkshake for you. And Mark was so disappointed. <laughs> Mark went several weeks without getting a milkshake, which was probably better for him in the long run. That's about all there is on Brockus. He didn't really work out. Well, something else that didn't really work out is we see promo that the truth commission and the commandant will debut the next week on raw, the truth commission chat me up, Bruce. That was a Bret Hart idea. Bret Hart had been in South Africa and the guy that was the commandant was his first name was Robin. He was an actor from South Africa. And Breton, he had become friendly, and Brett thought that this guy cut a great heel promo. And Brett had come back, and this was during the time that Vince was working with Brett and wanted Brett to be more involved with everything from, you know, the booking and just television writing, everything. And he was looking for Brett for the long haul. So this was Brett's first big idea was the Truth Commission, and Vince let him let him have it. So. We brought in the truth commission. There you go. What'd you think? I mean, listen, Don Callis is the apple of the internet's eye right now. So tread lightly. Um, he's not always had the nicest things in the world to say about you though, but this wasn't necessarily Don Callis not working out so much as, eh, this idea kind of sucked, right? Well, the idea wasn't the best idea in the world. The other problem was, was Robin was an actor. He was not a wrestling guy. He cut great promos on the set of Sinbad. Um, but he wanted things like, you know, first class airfare and he lived in South Africa. <laughs> so it wasn't going to work long-term. We also had Don who got put in that position because Rick Martell went to WCW and the original idea for Don Callis was to come in as a tag team of the models with Rick Martell. And now we're sitting there with Don and Vince was like talking to Brett. Brett's like, well, Don's Canadian. He could be in the truth commission. We had Luke Poyer. Um, oh, Barry was the other one. And then of course, big Robert Mallet. It just, it, it was a hodgepodge and I don't know that it was an idea that anybody really got this South African dictator. I don't know that that was big news in the United States of America. So they didn't get it. They, they weren't it just didn't work. It wasn't a good idea and it didn't work. Let's talk about another thing that happens on this episode of raw. Shawn Michaels comes out to a big heel response, and then he does a backflip off the top rope, landing on his knee. Of course, his knees not even wrapped up. He gives the wolf pack sign on the air. Um, he's doing this just to rub everyone's nose in the fact that they said he was faking an injury. So why not come out and show out with the backflip, right? 
Absolutely. And I think that that's how people took it, whether that's what he was doing or not. That's exactly how everybody took it. Look at him. He's like, his knees doesn't look too bad there, does it? So, yeah, I think for the most part, people thought it was all bullshit. This is also the episode where we see McMahon and Brett sort of go at it because it's revealed that McMahon has named Shawn Michaels, the referee for the SummerSlam match. So Brett slaps Vince and then eventually, uh, McMahon pulls Brett's t-shirt over his face. It's the first time we really see Vince get physical like this because he's rarely acknowledged as anything other than the commentator. What do you remember about this decision to involve Vince like this? This was, uh, this was also Brett's idea and Brett felt that people would take it as real. If Brett kind of went quote off script and went to Vince, that for those who knew it was, he was going after Vince, the owner of the company to Vince. It was like, he's taking his frustrations out on a commentator. Um, I think Brett's idea of the owner was more <laughs> what everybody had in mind. And it was just to flip the headset off and them to get into a little scuffle that didn't amount to much of anything, really. So it was, you know, and it wasn't Vince who made Shawn Michaels the referee. It was Gorilla Monsoon. It was Vince, the announcer, who was delivering the message. So, again, it's the the people that want to say, oh, well, Vince did it. But it was still Vince, the announcer. It was coming from Gorilla Monsoon, the figurehead president of the company at the time on TV. Something fun happened on this raw. You've got Brett Owen and bulldog in a six man taking on undertaker, Austin and dude love. And it's a flag on a pole match and they're going to go nearly 20 minutes. And what's sort of fun about this is Jim Ross is announcing that they're going to stay with the main event until they have a conclusion all night if they have to. And as he's saying this USA starts running a crawl saying that LaFemme Nikita would start in 10 minutes. And then five minutes later, they said LaFemme Nikita will start in five minutes. And of course, right on time, the guys go to the finish and the show is off the air. This is clearly something done to sort of compete with WCW and get that last minute viewer to come check you out and do a hangover. But it also gives one hell of a lead in for LaFemme Nikita. Does it not? Hell yeah, it gave a great lead in for LaFemme Nikita. You know, WCW had the advantage that the owner of the company was the network that they were on. So they could they could start a few minutes earlier, they could go a few minutes longer, which that number then, whatever number they did for that overrun, they would then lump it back in to the last quarter hour of their programming and make that last quarter hour appear even bigger. So we went to USA and said, God, if we could have an overrun and at least get in the game with them, man, let us go over, let us do the same thing. Uh, (laughs) never in a million years did we think they'd run a goddamn crawl across the bottom going, Hey, wait, folks, this match will be over in five minutes. Yeah. That was a USA call. So you didn't know that until they did it. Dude, we didn't know it till we saw it. That's fucking awful. I mean, you're, we're going to be here as long as it takes five more minutes. Unbelievable. Well, that's all it was going to take. Right. <laughs> uh, Doug Furnace gets the news here that his doctor recommends he have back surgery because apparently he's got some sort of a crushed vertebrae and he's going to need to be out in like six months, but instead he opts to rehab it. Is this sort of the beginning of the end of Doug Furnace with you guys? 
It was, you know, they, Furnace and LaFon, they weren't really getting over as a tag team. I don't know that people were really into it at that point. And Doug being injured didn't help matters at all. You guys had, um, made the decision around the same time to finally officially part ways with Sid. Meltzer would write this in the August 4th edition of the observer. Sid was officially fired by the WWF and it's almost mind boggling that a star of that magnitude in this kind of a wartime situation would be fired. But WWF officials apparently felt they had no alternative citing their inability to get any straight answers from him concerning his condition and injuries and when he'd be available. Under normal circumstances, WCW would try to bring a guy in under the illusion that it's another major jump. But since Sid has a lot of heat with a lot of people in Atlanta, not to mention quite a track record in this history. So chat me up. What really happened with Sid's departure here in the summer of 97? Well, Sid had collapsed and we were trying to get some kind of definitive word on Sid's condition. We couldn't get a definitive word from Sid as to what was going on with his injuries, when he might be back. And in that reality, you've got to say, okay, Sid, um, tell you what, you don't know when you're going to be back. We don't know when you're going to be back. Let's just go ahead and agree to part ways. There was, there wasn't really a fear that he would go down South to WCW because it was, yeah, it was, it was softball season too. So we didn't think that was going to happen, but no, I don't know if it was or not, but it was, you couldn't get any communication from him one way or another. So it was just felt we would part ways. And if he goes down and shows up on WCW, then he's their headache. Now, would anybody have suggested that when he collapsed, maybe he was putting on. Uh, I don't think he was, I really don't think he was because he was not, he was not feeling well, man. And it was a, a convenient, I think it was a convenient timing deal of when he collapsed with that car accident and everything else. I, I don't doubt at that time that he was having some health issues, but I also don't know if, if Sid was looking at other opportunities or or something else, or just not working at all. I, I don't know what was in his head because he wasn't talking to us. I want to point out that Sid had main evented survivor series less than a year prior to this. He had main evented a stadium show, Royal rumble, and he was your WrestleMania main event. And now here you are less than six months later, get the fuck out of here. Just, well, uh, you know, what are you going to do? No, guy no. won't talk to you. Not arguing. It's just interesting to me. I can't help but wonder if Sean had collapsed, would would Vince have fired him too? I doubt it. He'd probably let him go home for a while. Um, that's wrestling. R a s s l i n. That's wrestling. <laughs> I love you for this. So we got more promos the following week. You know, we're talking about, and this is one of my favorite Bret Hart promos. Uh, this is on July twenty eighth in Pittsburgh. Brett says, if you wanted to give the United States an enema, you'd stick the hose right here in Pittsburgh. What a great line that is. Right, Bruce? It's a horrible line, Conrad. I was just in Pittsburgh. It's a beautiful city, and by God, it's in America. Well, it's a good line. You're it right, was a great line. You got to admit, it was, a great, it was a great line. And one of the best that I think everybody remembers everywhere. That was good shit. He said that the uh, Patriot debuted coming out, standing next to Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. And he says that would be like Bill Clinton standing next to the Unabomber and Richard Simmons. 
uh, draw your own conclusions there. And, and he also goes and, and takes a couple of jabs at Shawn Michaels saying, you know, if he screws him out of the title, he can quote, sit at home for 10 years and find this smile. One of the better promos. This is probably the best promo year of hey. Brett's career. Don't you agree? This, this entire just time in Bret Hart's career to me was some of the best shit because you got to, you got the sourpuss Brett and you you got to see a different side of Brett that people had never seen before. And it came across as genuine and true. And it was the best work I think Brett has ever done in his career. This is the raw where we see Hunter Hearst Helmsley wrestling Vader, or he's supposed to, but mankind comes out dressed up as a cameraman and attacks Helmsley until China takes him down and starts pounding him. They start brawling through the crowds, Hunter and mankind. Whose idea was dressing up mankind like a cameraman. That's kind of fun. We hadn't seen that, that a lot at that time. It was Mick's idea. And I remember saying to Mick, Mick, I don't know how the hell we're going to disguise you as, as a cameraman and get you to ringside to where people aren't going to know it's you. I mean, look at you. And I swear to God, Mick turns and there was a cable puller that was down around the ring and he was helping set up that night. He goes, well, look at that guy. <laughs> and I went, case closed. All right, we can put you in a cap. We can get you in, a, in an outfit, get you down the ring. It'll be fine. Um, yeah, that was Mick Foley's idea. We also see an arm wrestling match here with Shamrock and Bulldog. Of course, there's dog food involved. Devin Storm and Ace Darling on raw 45 seconds. How about that? Well, that was about 32 seconds too long. Gold dust wrestling rockabilly. This is real life. Michael Moore was there. The boxing champion. Uh, Billman is attacking gold dust, trying to stuff a dress from a mannequin down his throat. Uh, interesting time here in the WWE. Um, the biggest takeaway from this era is the sort of curious push of Dale Wilkes because the Patriot gets a win over Bret Hart. And this is very quickly after coming into the company. Why was Vince so high on the Patriot or was this just right place, right time during this USA Canada angle? Well, I, Vince wasn't high on him. Cornette and myself, and Jim Ross were very high on him. And we, we had high hopes for Del Wilkes, man. We, we had high hopes for the Patriot. Vince didn't like the mask gimmick at all. Vince felt that a mask babyface guy didn't work. Vince didn't like masks to begin with. Um, and we felt that Dell had it. He had the speaking ability and he had the talent in the ring. We thought that he could come in subscribe to the philosophy that if you bring a guy in on top, people are going to accept, accept him as a top guy. And that's what we did with Dell. By God, bring him in on top and people are going to know he's a top guy. He looked like a top guy. I mean, just standing there. He looks like somebody with or without the mask on. And Vince just felt, well, we'll say his name, Dell Wilkes, the Patriot. I always like mask guy being mystery, but we thought that uh, he would go far. Well, I mean, he didn't have a bad run. It just maybe could have been a little longer. Sean Michaels was probably hoping for a longer run with Baywatch. He had just met with them and agreed to do a couple of episodes. What do you remember about how Sean Michaels got the association with Baywatch? 
Sean, you know, we had a lot of guys out in Hollywood. We had agents that were looking for parts for our guys. We had just different Hollywood based agents. And we gave them the task of here's the WWF roster. See if there are spots for our guys. Um, and Sean was somebody that was at the top of that list. And Baywatch looked at him for a couple of episodes. That's really all it was. It wasn't an effort by Sean to, oh, I want to go into Hollywood. I want to go into acting. It was hot, you know, hot property on our show. They were a hot property. Let's see if the two can merge. We talk a little bit about um, where the ratings were. I guess we should mention here, Raw does a 2.9, Nitro does a 3.4 as we head into SummerSlam. Before we get to SummerSlam, I want to talk about what Meltzer reported going down on July 31st, because he says you were there. Paul Heyman allegedly had a meeting at Titan Towers with Vince McMahon, yourself, and Jim Ross, and you guys were basically, quote, opening up the closed lines of communication. While nothing definite, as far as a date and angle was confirmed, McMahon apparently told Heyman that if he had any ideas on angles that would benefit both companies to present them to him, and both sides talked a lot about the September 22nd live Raw show from Madison Square Garden, but saying that ECW will definitely be a part of that show appears to, at this point, be premature, but certainly a possibility. Sources within the WWF claim that Hellman had, Heyman had Hellman. been on the WWF <laughs> payroll for quite a while, and the relationship was cooling off from the WWF side, when Heyman no-showed the June 30th show in Des Moines, Iowa, where he was supposed to start as a color commentator on Shotgun Saturday night. And the WWF claims that Heyman had told them to keep that news quiet because he didn't want the wrestlers to find out before he told them himself. Of course, he never told them and then never showed up. And Heyman denies all this and says that was never agreed upon. It was just talked about. Chat me up. What happened in this meeting and was this sort of Paul trying to mend fences after the shotgun Saturday night situation. What, what shotgun Saturday night situation are you talking about? Well, I just went over it. He was, did, did he to... allegedly no showed for something he wasn't scheduled for? Okay. So you, you guys never talked to him about being color commentator. We had talked at one time about maybe having Paul as a color commentator and working with us and doing other things, but it was never set in stone that Paul was going to be a color commentator for shotgun Saturday night or anything else during this time frame at all. Okay. So that's he had, something that, so he had no heat with you guys at all for no showing a non-existing. No, I'm date? not asking that I'm asking. I don't know. I don't know how I said that wrong. No, I don't, I don't again. know. I don't know where the heat comes from or where this story even oh, comes on, from. Hang on, Paul, hang on. Was there heat? Yes or no? We can do, we can figure out why, like, why was this meeting happening? That's what I'm getting to. Did, oh, because did we you... wanted to do more things with Paul. Paul was already on the payroll. We were doing things with him and Vince felt that it is like, let's have him come in. I don't want to do a clandestine meeting where it's just have him come into the goddamn office and talk with us and let's see what we can do. If there's some, some more that we can do with his organization, if we can help them more and if he can help us, but there were no dates set, there were no angles set and or talked about. Um, it was Paul, you've got your company. What do you want to do with it? How can we help you? How can you help us? What were some that of, was the meeting. Do you recall some of the ideas that maybe Vince liked or that Paul suggested? 
as the idea, the general idea was that ECW would be a feeding ground and a territory for the WWE, where when guys are finishing up with WWE, they would go down to ECW. When we were looking to bring guys in as a transitional place for them to go, instead of coming right in to us, they would go to ECW first. And it was just general parameters. And if we can help you, you want to do pay-per-view, if we can help you plug your pay-per-views and do some interpromotional stuff, we were open to that. But it was very general. Let's talk about the idea, because there is a rumor and innuendo that one of the ideas that Paul pitched was maybe doing Van Dam and Sabu against Dreamer and Sandman at SummerSlam. Now, not on the actual pay-per-view, because you guys wouldn't have been into that, but perhaps doing something there on the free-for-all or some such silliness. Now, to my knowledge, the torch, the observer, nobody like that ever reported it, but it did make the message boards. It makes you wonder, is this just a fan making shit up or is this Heyman trying to pitch an idea? Do you remember Heyman pitching any idea about any involvement at SummerSlam? No. Uh, did you watch? Raw? It's silly how this shit gets out there to me that people, you know, cause somebody sits behind their keyboard and types it up. Doesn't make it true. And the, and the people then read that and they think that, well, there's got to be some germ to it because it's out there in the cloud or whatever the hell it is. That's my new, that's my new thing. It's in the cloud. Um, no, there's no truth to that. And I think that's just people speculating and trying to hypothesize. Do you remember having a discussion about ECW having some sort of involvement at all at the MSG show on September 22nd? We talked, yeah, we talked, we talked about in the New York area where they were in New York and Philadelphia, how we could best utilize them if there is a way to tie it in. But Vince never wanted, really wanted to do too much of that. But I don't know that that specific, no, I don't, again, no, I don't, there weren't specifics. It was general. I, I, yeah. I wasn't saying specifically. I just didn't know, you know, cause that's what's reported that there was some sort of idea that maybe you guys could work together on that particular raw, but it doesn't detail exactly what, uh, let's talk a little bit about SummerSlam. We're finally here. We've been talking about this show for an hour. You might as well get here. Uh, 20,213 is the attendance. 17,361 paying fans would pay a gate of $523,000 and an incredible $202,000 in change in merchandise. Uh, this sold out about a week in advance and it breaks pro wrestling records in all three categories at the former Meadowlands arena. The previous record was a SummerSlam 89 record of 17,202 fans. And here's an idea of inflation. Back then, that was only a $326,000 gate. As a reminder, you had Hogan and Beefcake on top, taking on Zeus and Randy Savage there. And this is the second largest gate of uh, 1997 in North America at this point, only behind WrestleMania. So you guys have got to be pretty pleased that not only are you back in New Jersey, you're setting fucking records. Yeah, we're very pleased because, again, it's close to home for us, the Meadowlands, and that was a mainstay for so long for us. And to be able, you know, the Meadowlands in a lot of ways was the garden number two for us in New York. I mean, that was our second big building for just so long. Um, so yeah, it was nice to be back and it was nice to be successful being back. 
SummerSlam 97 was sponsored by Stridex. And for those of you who are too young to remember them, it's a pretty big acne product back in the day. How does the relationship with Stridex come to be? Uh, Jim Rothschilds uh, was the New York sales uh, vice president. He was vice president of sales for the New York sales office. Uh, Stridex was a company, they were pads. And what they would do is they would dry the fuck out of your skin. So every 12-year-old, 12 to 16, 17-year-old on the face of the earth usually had acne. And Stridex looked at the WWF as a perfect target for that demographic to get out there and sell their stuff, man. And Jim capitalized on that big time. I loved it. Uh, I used Stridex as a kid and a lot of our listeners did too. Me too. Let's talk about, uh, the first match here. I guess before we do the, the show opens with, um, star spangled banner and the American flag. And then we get a pretty cool video and I love videos from this era. You haven't seen this in a long time. what do you think of the voiceover and just the way the package was put together? Well, again, first thing that hit me was the national anthem and the crowd shots throughout that whole thing. And it was, that was just pretty cool to me. The video package, again, go back and when you watch it, guys, man, it's off the chart and told all of the stories of what the hell was going on. And the, the whole Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Undertaker trilogy, and it just set the stage for everything that was going to take place that night. Uh Little thing, looking at Vince with his hand over his heart, but kind of just hanging in his jacket was funny to me because it looked more like he had his hand over his belly than his heart, but a great opening and good stuff. First match is a cage match. We're getting this one started in a big way. Mankind and Hunter Hearst Helmsley have been on a collision course here and China is on the outside, but that's not going to keep her from interfering, whether there are chains involved or um, slamming the door on his head. They're pulling out all the stops here, but the big spot is it looks like mankind is going to win. He climbs over the top of the cage, almost down to the floor. And at the very bottom of the cage, which stops at the top of the ring apron, he looks up and then decides to take his mask off, throw it over into the ring and then climb back up, tear the top of his mankind top, and then drop the big elbow, just like dude love would do. It's a pretty cool moment. Of course, eventually they play the dude love music and two and a half stars is where we get, um, what'd you think? Meltzer says that, uh, the match had its high spots and memorable spots and in hindsight was very well laid out, but something was missing from the body of the match and it just didn't have heat. And I don't know that I I don't know that I necessarily disagree with you know, the crowd wasn't responding maybe the way they could have, because I remembered this match much more fondly than the way they received it. Then I was sort of shocked with the way it was received when I watched it back 20 something years later. I thought it was a good match. I thought it was a solid match. There were just funny spots in it where at the top, when Mick Foley was climbing over the top of the cage and China climbs up on the outside of the cage to stop him. She goes to <laughs> Mick has his ass basically in her face and China goes, I don't know what the hell she was trying to do, but she basically punches him in the ass. And for those of us backstage, everybody popped because it was just a funny sight the way he sold it. And Mick going back in the ring from an ass punch. 
but also watching it back all these years later in the psychology sometimes, especially for a heel where Hunter had Mick completely beat in the ring. All he had to do was walk out the door, but I'm going to go back for more punishment. And the psychology killed me on, on some of those spots uh, for Mick to do it at the end and do the superfly spot and Mick to eventually go over. I'm fine with that. Um, but the, also the other thing that for years everybody talked about was China slamming the cage door of big blue on Mick Foley's head. And I don't care who you are. That fucking cage was the stiffest son of a bitch ever made. And there was no way to protect yourself or, or cushion that shot. And that was one of those that for guys that have been in the big blue cage, they cringe every time they see it. Wade Keller. I'm sorry, not Wade Keller. Mick Foley actually wrote about it in his book that China swung that cage door as hard as she could, which is the way he insisted that she do things like that, but that it fucking nailed him and gave him a concussion. And he said it hurt so bad that he didn't even hold his head. He held his shoulder because he had shooting pains down his arm, but that wasn't the only head trauma he suffered here. There's a spot in the match where Hunter slams his head into the cage 10 times unanswered. And about every other time it leaves a lump on his head. So he wakes up the next day, all lumped up and in a bad way. But of course he finished the match, got his big super fly moment. And if, as if that wasn't obvious from him climbing and you know, the, the heart tattoo and the, I love you hand signal, Jim Ross is putting it over really big and helping you at home sort of connect the dots. Did you talk to Mick afterwards? This is sort of you know, his first big breakout moment about him achieving his boyhood dream of sorts. What did he think of the match afterwards? You know, immediately, I think Mick was pleased with it. I think it was a big deal for him to be in a cage match and quote the New York market and be able to do that spot off the cage, which is what he wanted to do was that big elbow off the top. I think both guys were pleased with the match and there was nothing not to be pleased with. It told a Good story. Psychology-wise, I might have changed a few things, but again, that's looking at a hindsight. Next up is uh, not the world's best match. We've got Brian Pillman and Goldust. They're going to go seven minutes and 15 seconds. The finish is botched. The idea here is that uh, if Pillman wins, he gets Marlena, but if Marlena wins or if uh, Goldust wins, then Pillman has to wear a dress. Pretty interesting deal here star half a star is what this one would get chat me up about what you thought about the match and what would it have been had the finish not been a misfire well it's not going to go down as a you know luthez classic or anything like that but what was fun for me was to just go back and watch the intensity of brian pillman and watching how Brian, everything that he did, he was in character, stayed in character, no matter what he was selling, if he was on top. And they told the best story they could. No, it wasn't a great match. Brian was limited with his injuries. And the finish with Goldust trying to do the sunset flip and landing smack dab on top of his head. We were concerned for him at that point, but they finally got through the finish and made the best out of it of what they could do. But no, it wasn't a great match at all. I guess we should mention, and I know we talked about this in both our gold dust and our Brian Pillman episodes, but I feel like we should touch on it again here behind the scenes in real life. Brian had had a relationship with Terry Runnels, who at this point is Dustin's wife. 
Marlena on camera. Dustin would write that, um, Brian had dated her way back before we were married, which of course always made me insecure. I didn't have a problem with him. We were friendly and I did my best to go with the flow, but I was very uncomfortable. I hated that they had a history together. How well known amongst the boys was that? And that doesn't feel like something that Brian would run around and necessarily yuck, yuck about. What do you remember? You know, I, I would imagine that guys from WCW back in the day might have known about it, but it wasn't something that everybody was talking about by any stretch of the imagination. And it's pretty common too. You know, I mean, it feels like a deal that a lot of people hear that and they're like, oh, that must've sucked. But like, even on today's roster, like a lot of the, this guy was with that girl and that girl was with this guy. Like it's not that big a deal. Is it? It can be. Yeah. I mean, it really can be because a lot of times, uh, life imitates art and vice versa. So it, it can be sometimes with some people, but some people are totally cool with it and it's fine. Isn't it crazy to think that just two months after this, two months and change, Brian Pillman wasn't with us anymore. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Again, way too soon. So far in our first match, China's no longer with us. In our second match, Brian Pillman's no longer with us. In our third match, we've got the Legion of Doom. Hawk's no longer with us. Beat the Godwins in nine minutes and 51 seconds. Um, the Godwins come out wa- waving the rebel flag. Animal looks like he's dropped male bees, and he's looking like he's in pretty good shape. But Meltzer would write, pretty bad match. Lots of botched spots. Lou Albano was in the front row, which was acknowledged. Um, ultimately, of course, they only get a half a star. LOD come out on top. They're uh, sort of hinting that they want to tag run, making those motions to fire the fans up. This was not a good match to watch today. What did you think about it? Ouch. Yeah, it was not a good match. Here's, here's what I picked up, man, from watching LOD. And it hit me when they made their entrance coming out of the tunnel. They acknowledged the fans and were looking at the fans pointing upwards. The mystique of the Legion of Doom got lost on me in that one little moment because I always remember those guys just coming to the ring like their only purpose was to kick somebody's ass. And the minute that they started working to the fans was when they kind of lost me in their intensity for me. Uh, there's still Legion of doom. The match was not great, but it was also, you know, guys kind of feeling each other out. And last time that Henry had been in with those guys, he had a broken neck. So I think everybody was a little trepidatious and not, not one of the better matches of the evening, but they had intensity. At least, at least you believe the shit. It was solid but you don't put two, uh, two giant teams in each, into each other. And, and they just collide. There wasn't a lot for either one of them to do. I don't know that what you said there was very clear. The last time these two teams wrestled LOD broke Henry's neck. Yeah. With the doomsday device. Was there heat on animal Hawk or is it just, Hey, I'm a big motherfucker and I feel wrong. Uh, there was, there probably was, I don't know that there ever was outward heat to where it was, you know, I don't know. There was ever any fuck you, fuck yous. It was an accident and no one knew the extent of that accident until much later. So 
you know, it's one of those things that happened, you know, it's, it ain't ballet and it, it's a, it's a bad deal, but yeah, Henry, Henry was hurt. I just think they were trepidatious. I think all the guys were, but again, it, it's the Godwins work better with a small team that can bump all over for them. LOD works better with a small team that can bump all over for them. You put the four guys together, they collide. Who's bumping Phineas, <laughs> you know? So it was, it was, it was not a well-booked match, but something that we felt we needed to do. There was a story there. Next up is one of my favorite segments in the history of the company. It's the million dollar segment where fans could enter to win a million dollars. That's locked in a casket because the undertaker is the world champion. And Todd Pettengill is here with Sable and the most roll Todd Sonny in the history of roll Todd. And they do a little bit of a skit with the two guys who've been selected and they even show that one of the guys made the front page of the paper, which is hilarious. The little boy's last name is Chadick, which is awesome. And, uh, Mr. Chadick gets up there and picks which number he thinks, uh, will unlock the lock. So he goes up and makes a selection for a key. And then another guy who's doing his best stone cold, Steve Austin impression pulls his key. And then they have a couple of sheets of paper that a producer hands Todd Pettengill live on the air. They have a phone line, like a real old school landline hooked up through the PA. So everybody can hear. And he starts fumbling through the numbers and makes the call and can't get a dial tone. And then eventually gets a dial tone and can't get the number in right. And when he finally does, they don't answer. And then he goes to another one and their fucking phones disconnected. And then he goes to another one and it's clearly a kid who lives with his parents. And when the kid gets on the, uh, on the uh, phone, he admits he's not watching SummerSlam. At this point, does Vince McMahon want to abort the entire fucking campaign? I can't imagine. You can hear Vince laughing on the damn thing. Yeah. And he's ribbing or he's saying, you know, could he dial a little slower? I mean, he's got to be melting down. We were all melting down. Here's the issue. You do this, it's a lottery. Okay. So you have to abide by a whole good God laundry list of rules and regulations and everything else. And it all has to be above board. You can't touch the board. You can't, you know, it has to be random. The numbers have to be compiled by the lottery people. Um, the phone is controlled in the truck. So everything that could go wrong did go. You couldn't pre-call people to say, hey, um, we're going to be calling you later on tonight. Please be by your phone. Be ready to answer. Our idea was, okay, great. Provide us the list, but let us call the list. And when they answer, we tell them, hey, we're going to call you at such and such a time. So you're there and they're prepared a little bit. You know, the other two people were there in person, so they're prepared. Why can't we prepare these people? And, and the, the, the rules people wouldn't let us do it. Nope. You got to call them at random. You got to do it in this order. You got to do it like this. And it was fucking brutal. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. Well, I don't think it was that bad. I mean, we got, more, it was brutal. No, we got more time with Sonny on camera, which was just. Everything I needed as a 16 year old. 
Um, of course you have an idea where this goes. Nobody wins the fucking money. You know, we're, we're trying to save $15,000 on airfare. So we're not giving away a million dollars. Eventually they bring an official up who says it's number six and they it's take, number three or whatever. They take the key down, stick it in, turn it, bam, it unlocks. We're good to go. So they proved that it really could be opened, but when they open the casket, of course, it's a giant casket and a million dollars in cash is not this giant, impressive visual. So the WWF tried to do what they could to make it this giant, impressive visual. And it's just filled with ones. So it looks like Floyd Mayweather went to the shoe show or something, which I thought was tremendous. Normally when you see those bundles of cash like that, they're hundreds here, they're ones cause roll tide, but it, it was a cool visual. No, um, it was a great visual. And, and the, you know, Hey, look, even if somebody won the million dollars, we weren't paying out the million dollars. No, it was insurance. Yeah, it was, it was all insurance. So that was, it was a great promotion that cost us all of roughly $15,000 to get a lot of promotion out of the deal. And, and it did do that. So it was a million dollar giveaway and people were talking about it. I guess we should mention here, this isn't the only shot that happens like this. You guys bring out the New Jersey governor and actually do an interview with her live on the air. And you see Vince McMahon going overboard on commentary. He's even saying something like, uh, and for all we know, she could be the future president of the United States. And they're going out of their way to thank her for getting rid of the taxes, which is just a weird thing to do uh, in front of a wrestling crowd. Um, the headbangers are here. Gorilla Monsoon is here and they present her with the world title. That's the actual belt that undertaker and Bret Hart are going to sport later in the main event and she holds it up for pictures. But then I don't even know that, you know, this, you probably do years later, it would come out that Vince actually had Reggie parks, deliver a women's world title to her. And he personally signed a little note to her on the belt and in a pen, you know, to the future, to our next president of the United States. Thanks for everything. Something like that. Vince McMahon. And a friend of ours has that belt. So we'll post pictures, but I, I did think it was kind of cool that as a thank you for allowing his company to come in and not have to pay those exorbitant taxes, he had a fucking belt made for her. how cool is that? Well, it was very cool. And she was instrumental in us being able to come back and present pay-per-views and do TV in New Jersey. So it was a big deal. And she was, she did have her sights set on the white house. However, it's another prime example of the biggest no-no in entertainment. Never bring out a politician. I was really shocked by that because you guys didn't do that a lot. And it feels like you've always tried to avoid it. But yet right here, I don't know if it was something that Vince just wanted to do as a thank you, or he was trying to curry favor. I don't know. What, what do you make of this decision to strut a politician out there? It was good for her. And if it was good for her, then it was good for us. And he felt that the positives, positives outweighed the negatives. Oh, of course. I mean, he got a huge payday that day. Do you think that this is something she requested or Vince wanted? Uh, Vince asked her if she wanted to do it and she did. Oh, there you go. Were you, did you try to talk him out of it or put it on the pre-show or anything like that? I mean, why, why would this be <laughs> on the pay-per-view instead of the pre-show? It was a message. It was a message to all of those states out there that were still collecting their taxes that we're going to win. <laughs> we're going to get you one way or another. So why not just, uh, 
Why not just give us what we want? We'll make you world champion and put you over. Fucking A. Well, you're a world champion. You're a world champion. You're a world champion. I'm going to post pictures of that belt. I think you'll get a kick out of it. I mean, it's pretty rare to have a world title signed by Vince McMahon. At least I think. Uh, Ken Shamrock is uh, in a match for the European title with Davy Boy Smith. Of course, Davy Boy is promoted going into this match as defending that against Shawn Michaels at one night only, which to me sort of gives away the fucking finish. Um, either way, though, Bulldog retains by DQ. Uh, the match gets a star in three quarters. Of course, there's dog food, Shamrock going berserk. Uh, he's choking out Davy Boy. Officials are trying to break it up. Uh, he gives Pat Patterson and Briscoe and a couple of refs belly to belly suplexes. He's over like Rover here. Uh, what'd you think of the match and the shenanigans afterwards? Well, okay. A couple things go back and watch Ken Shamrock walk to the ring. And there's where you will see what I'm talking about is how the road warriors used to walk to the ring and Ken Shamrock walking to the ring. If it was me standing in the ring and I can't run. I would find a way to run away as fast as I possibly could. He looked like a maniac coming to the ring to rip somebody's head off. So it was intense, man. It was exactly, you know, what it, what it was meant to be was a avenue to show Shamrock's intensity. I thought that the match was slow. It was pretty damn plotting and, and slow. But the finish and the aftermath, it accomplished what we were looking to accomplish, and that was to get Ken, Ken Shamrock over as a berserk wild man. Well, it worked because he was over like crazy here. Uh, we talked about this match a little bit in our Bulldog episode, but a match that we'll probably never talk about again. Los Periquas and the DOA had a brawl and not a very pretty one. Um, the bikes didn't even get a big pop here. And I thought that would have been the norm, but it was not. It gets half a star. These guys have been building this, um, this sort of gang warfare thing with the NOD and the DOA and the Los Bariquas. Of course, Ahmed Johnson and all these guys are here for this as well. Chat me up. what did you think about this match and why did it suck? First of all, pal, they're not gangs. They're factions. We don't do gangs here. Really? Yeah. Factions. Help me understand. What was the, uh, what was the name of survivor series? 1997. I had a tagline factions. No, it was gang rules. Ah, that was different. We do factions, but the name of the paper Ah, factions, but survivor factions, but it says gang, but it's gang. Faction. It says gang rules. Faction. Faction rules, pal. God damn. And, and the other best part of this, here's, here's, this will tell you exactly what I thought of this match. My favorite part was when the graphic came up and Vince says, all right, getting ready for some 10 man tag team action oh here. My God. And it's, and it's four on four. <laughs> you know, that was my favorite part too, because I'm like, wait a minute. Cause he says 10 man. And I'm like, that can't even be. And, then and the graphic me. is up. Yeah. <laughs> Four on four. There's eight dudes. And you know what, it, what is lost on people sometimes is the eight dudes that were in this match are probably eight of the toughest son of a bitches in the, in the whole territory. You throw in at the end, the nation. And it's like, you've got now 
12 of the toughest badasses in the entire company. And it's just, it's brutal. I don't even know who the hell won this. I, I think it was just a, a schmoz and a fuck up, whatever. But the other great part at the very end is when Crush gets on the bike. He's going to run over someone. God, God. Oh, my God. He's going to run over someone. And he just rides down the middle of the aisle. No one sold it. No one got out of the fucking way. Nobody sold him coming out. And then he goes all the way around. Like, oh, my God. Good God. He's going to run over someone. And then he just rides right back down the middle of the aisle and goes to the back. And you can see, you can see the guys trying to tell uh, the nation, hey, man, uh, let's go. Get out. Let's go. Get out. Let's go. And finally, uh, the Harris boys like go <laughs> and, and grab chains and just pull them off. Uh, yeah, it was a little brutal. Next up is the match that everybody really wants us to talk about. Steve Austin wins the intercontinental title from Owen Hart in 16 minutes and 16 seconds. Meltzer would write super heat early. And that's true. He would also write that these two were having by far the best match on the show before the injury cut the match short. And you know what happens here? Um, Hart reverses an Austin move and drops him into a tombstone pile driver and Austin's injured here. And the idea is instead of it being a tombstone, like the undertaker does, where you go down to your knees, Owen would sit out and Austin's head was exposed and he was compacted. And this injury is going to be one that's going to haunt Steve for a long time. And ultimately is one of the reasons his career was cut short in 2003. We're going to talk about what Austin wrote in his book, but I want you to carry us through what you remember of the night, because they did even a pretty fun thing with Austin here before the match where he's walking to the ring and Todd Pettengill, I'm sorry, Michael Cole is trying to interview him the entire way and he's having nothing to do with it. And we even see you sitting at gorilla right before he walks out. It's a pretty cool shot. And one of the first times we saw something like that with Steve, it definitely sets him apart. makes him feel like a big deal. This is supposed to be his coming out party of sorts. And then it's cut short. You were there. What do you remember about the match and what was going on backstage when you see very clearly and know what's happened? Well, first of all, the match was excellent. Um, and it makes you think the outcome and, and the consequences after the fact of what could have been, you know, had Steve not had that injury and been able to compete and continue his career for many years longer than he actually was able to. And his career was cut short because of that injury. So it was, you know, this is definitely a history changing moment going back, you know, watching it. Everything's going great. They're having a hell of a match. This is one of those that you can go back and remember. Good God. Steve Austin was the shit back then, man. God, he was, uh, arguably the best worker in the company at that time and was so over. They wanted him so bad. Then you got Owen Hart, who one of the best technicians, the best worker ever to put on a pair of boots. And they're, they're both have their working shoes on tonight and they're both going out and, and having this great match. And then bam, pile driver comes 
And we knew right away from the way that Steve's feet were and they were kind of cockeyed and he was flat and the, the way his hands were, it was like he couldn't lift his head and we're trying to find out, you know, what the hell's, what the hell's wrong with him. It, it of course, everybody is, you want to think the most positive outcome you can. You, you want to think, oh, he's got a stinger. Give him a second. Uh, he'll be okay. And you, you're only con- you can only communicate one way with the referee. And it's like, give me a sign. Let me know he's okay. Let me know he's okay. And Steve is trying to tell Earl that he's hurt. And Earl's communicating it to Owen. Owen's trying to stall. And then Steve calls for the roll-up. Um, but even that, you know, Steve really wasn't able to do that well. And it, it just, we got out of it. And then the rush to find out how bad is it. Somebody, t- somebody talk to me. Somebody tell me what the fuck's going on with Steve Austin, please. Because you could, you could clearly see he wasn't right. He did not have all his faculties. He didn't have feeling in his legs. And you can tell he didn't have all his feeling in his fingertips or anything yet either. So very, very just scary moment. You just never want to see that because while you're, th- you want to think positive and you want to think the best, you also have those thoughts going through your head of, uh, man, he just broke his neck. Was he, fight- was he fighting mad in the back? Um, he was pretty fucking pissed off, but you know, at the same time, he was still dazed when, when he came back and you know, Steve's one of these guys doesn't like, like have a lot of people around him. It's like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Um, except when he's hurt and, and he was hurt, but he still didn't want everybody kind of fawning all over him. And, oh my God, Steve, we got, uh, ice on his neck right away. And the doctor checked him out and, um, the original, you know, the initial, prognosis was he's got a stinger. Ah, Steve, you know, walk it off. You'll be fine. Um, that wasn't the case, man. He broke his neck and it was much worse than, than anyone thought that night. And unfortunately, you know, the, the worst fears came, came to light. Let's talk about what Steve wrote in his book. Um, he says that before the match in the back, they're going over a few things, him and Owen. And he says to Owen, well, what about if we do that thing where I come in for the elbow and you rotate your back around and pick me up upside down and give me a tombstone pile driver. And then you cover me and I'll kick out right before the three count. Now, Owen, I don't trust anybody to do a pile driver on me, but you can do it. Right. And he said, yeah. And I said, you're going to your knees, right? And he said, no, I'm going to drop to my ass. And I said, well, you need to go to your knees, right? And he said, no, I dropped to my ass. That's two times I said that. And I was thinking I'm dealing with Owen Hart, the brother of Bret Hart, the son of Stu Hart. I guess he knows what he's doing. He's ribbing me about dropping to his ass instead of his knees. Owen was one hell of a technician. And when he assured me I'd be okay, I took his word that I'd be okay. I didn't think twice about it. I'd mentioned my concerns to him twice. But an inverted tombstone pile driver done the way the undertaker does it. It's always knees, not ass. So I figured Owen's got it. He knows my concern. I asked him twice about it. And that was the big spot in the match. You're in the back. 
Did you hear this conversation or hear about it after the fact? No, I didn't hear the conversation at all beforehand. And I, I had no idea about it. Um, you know, after the fact, yeah, I mean, Steve, Steve was upset. Steve was pissed off, man. It was in Steve's mind. Here's his big push. And someone has just told me he's got a broken neck. He's not happy. He's pissed. <laughs> uh, rightfully so. It was, you know, it was a mistake. It was just a horrible accident. And, you know, you can't be, you can't be upset at Steve for being upset, man. He's got a broken neck and now he doesn't know. Not only is his push going to not happen, but is his career going to happen? Is walking ever is again the, thank you. Going to happen. Yeah. You know, this is, um, this could lead to, you know, a, a quadriplegic type injury. Uh, it's a major blow to the spinal cord, especially when you've got big guys here. I mean, Owen's probably 225 and Austin's probably 250. And now his head is, you know, six inches below his ass and he's being spiked in. He would write, he being Austin, pronouns pal, that it was like a big gong going off in his head. And he says, normally when things, you know, happen like this, people go unconscious or get all groggy. But he, on the other hand, was razor sharp the entire time. And it was like, he had super hearing his legs straightened up, his arms bent, his hands were frozen. And he remembers picking his head up from the mat and telling the referee Earl Hebner, tell him not to fucking touch me. I can't move. And Earl gets up and goes to Owen and says, don't touch him. He can't move. And then Austin says to Earl, tell him to buy me some time. So Owen starts chanting to the crowd. Now he's going to have to kiss my ass. He's just trying to buy time. And you can see all this go down on the tape. If you know what you're looking for. And it feels like forever, but it's really about a minute and a half. And he starts to get the feeling back in his limbs, his shoulders and interior delts feel like they're on fire. And he says it takes everything he can just to bend his legs and try to get into a crawl position, but he can't crawl because his hands aren't functioning yet, but he has to go to the finish and he has to win. So he's crawling on his elbows and he tells Earl roll up for the win. And he tells Owen the spot that's called. And then we see the worst looking roll up in the history of wrestling, but it's because he literally can't use his limbs, but somehow he managed to do it. But Owen kicked right out after three and Austin says, why to make himself look strong. Like he was barely beat. And that kick out hurt me like hell too. And he could have easily injured my neck further. This has been a point of contention or would be a point of contention for the rest of Owens and, and Austin's life. Would it not? Yeah. Cause it was you know, major turning point and you, you go back and watch it and it's just, it's hard to watch. It's really hard to watch. Not only, not only the injury and everything in the ring, but Steve attempting to walk back at the end and just, you see him making the steps with his right leg and he's just dragging his left foot. Um, that left, the left foot is just dragging. I remember Jerry Briscoe and I, sitting at the monitor and, and pointing that out and going, man, he ain't right. It's, it's, he's not good. So, um, Owen felt like shit. Steve felt like shit. Um, 
not a good night, man. Not not a not a good night for Owen Hart and and Steve Austin. Did they talk about it that you know of ever? I think one of the things that Austin took issue with is I think like protocol and something like this. And of course, what the fuck do I know? I'm not a wrestler is that when you hurt a guy, you're supposed to call him and check on him. And allegedly maybe Owen didn't handle that the way Austin would have wanted him to. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've, I've heard the same things over the years and, and I don't know what that was. I know that that night Owen felt like shit. I know that the next day Owen felt like shit. Um, but there's a difference in feeling like shit and, and trying to make amends of some sort. Right. Right. And, and also at the same time, what do you do? And, and I say that to say that it's, I think it's different for everybody. I think that it's when D'Lo Brown was at the hospital when Draws broke his neck and, and was paralyzed. Um, I, I remember D'Lo just sitting in the waiting room and, and shaking in tears. Um, and he was told, you know, go and, and go get some rest. There's nothing more you can do here tonight. Uh, I think it's different for everybody. I know that. Brock Lesnar kicked my face in and before I got home, I had 50 pounds of lobster and crab meat and, and cards from Brock Lesnar. Okay. (laughs) Making sure I was all right. And and just apologizing over and over for kicking my face in accidentally. Um, everybody handles it differently. I, I don't know. There's a right way or a wrong way. I don't know that they ever, uh, totally reconciled. I think the only two people that know that, you know, one of them's not with us anymore. And Steve's the only one that could answer that. I think Steve has said something like, um, they were still cordial. He just didn't find Owen as funny as they used to. Well, I can, I can definitely see that, man. Because again, that, that one move, that one moment in time changed Steve's life forever. Yes. You know, he still had the, um, residual effects from that for years. I mean, still to this day and to, yeah, I was going to say today he still has effects of it. And I know a lot of people are hearing this and thinking, well, why don't he just let him beat him? Well, you've got to remember this is stone cold, Steve Austin. And the stipulation here is that if Owen beats him, he has to kiss his ass and he can't do that as this character. I mean, he just can't. And he also can't be seen being carted off. So he tries to walk to the back, even though he is sort of dead legged, as you're saying, but he couldn't, especially after WrestleMania 13, where he passes out wink, wink from loss of blood, he's got to be able to power through this. So he does, but at an extensive cost because he does get uh, an x-ray that night and they find out later when he has further tests because the, the x-ray shows, you know, that's negative, no big deal. But he finds out later that he has a bruised spinal cord and he's obviously still dealing with that. So he leaves the hospital, even though he probably should have stayed the night and just goes and gets a 12 pack of beer and goes to the hotel and drinks the beer and goes to bed. And four or five days later, he's told that he's going to have to retire or risk paralysis to continue. 
the MRI that's done there shows what's known in football as a stinger, which is trauma to the C4 and C5 vertebrae, but he's not going to retire. So instead he gets that second opinion from the Philadelphia doctor who says that, um, you know, he's just going to have significant pain. He's got a bruised spinal cord and he's out of action until the survivor series when he has a return match with Owen for the intercontinental title. So for that down period between SummerSlam and survivor series, we see all the fun stuff with Sergeant slaughter, getting a stunner, Vince getting stunned at Madison square garden. It in a weird way. And I know this is like the weirdest sentence ever him being injured forced more of an emphasis on the character and to be put into spots with guys like slaughter and Vince. And had he not been injured, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Right. Well, he did. He was still on that. You know, if he had not been injured, the path was still for him at WrestleMania to become the new WWF champion. The, the path that we took was different than originally thought of. And we, in the time frame there, while we were trying to figure out if Steve's going to be okay, you know, you're coming up with A and B plans too. Thinking, okay, if he isn't able to come back, what the hell are we going to do? So, um, a lot of posturing there for a while, trying to figure out what the hell you're going to do next. What do you remember or did you ever hear? about the Steve Austin Masahiro Chono match from 1992. Don't know anything about it. Steve Austin was wrestling Chono in new Japan and hurt him with the exact same move. It was a tombstone pile driver, but he didn't go to his knees. He went to his ass and hurt Chono in the process. Well, again, accidents happen and. It's that that's not cool for Chono. It's really, I don't know, ironic that this move has sort of followed Steve around for better or worse. Well, I guess there is no for better, just for worse and worse. That's also a good, good reason why I don't think guys should do any kind of pile drivers or dropping guys on their heads in any way, shape or form. What about Jerry Lawler? Even Jerry Lawler. I don't care. Okay. All right. Well, let's, I mean, listen, we know he's hurt people. Look what he did to Andy Kaufman. I know. I mean, ran him right out of the business. It's a wonder that Memphis was even able to operate after Kaufman's lawyers were done. Let's talk about the main event, which is why we're here. You actually, uh, watched some of this on Patreon this week. You loved it. Bret Hart is going to become a five time WWF world champion, uh, beating the undertaker in 28 minutes and nine seconds. Uh, Meltzer love it. He gave it three stars. The story is incredible here because Bret Hart's heel heat is off the charts. Brett being the heel undertaker being the baby face and Sean being somewhere in the middle as the referee where you're not really sure how to handle Sean. And then of course the famous ending where Brett hits the undertaker with a chair, tries to throw it in the corner. Uh, Michael slides back in undertaker kicks out, but then Sean realizes, Hey, wait a minute. There's a chair in here. He tries to confront Brett with it. Brett spits at him. Allegedly the spit was supposed to go on the chest, but it goes square in Sean's face, his nose and mouth. Sean rears back, nails a chair shot on the undertaker. And you can actually see your reaction to that on the wrestling with shadows documentary where you're really selling the chair shot. 
down goes undertaker and a reluctant pin is made one, two, three. Shawn Michaels has to make the count. Bret Hart's your new champion. What a story you guys told here in New Jersey. What'd you think of the match? Excellent. I thought that the match was fabulous from start to finish. 45 minutes from entrance until the very end, signing off with Brett is the new champion. There were so many stories to be told in this one match from Brett and Sean to Brett and Taker to Taker and Paul Bearer and Kane to Taker and Sean. And everything came together beautifully. It was we had to get the, the championship off of Taker. We we put the championship on him and realized midway through, man, w- there's no way for us to get sympathy on this champion. He, he's too big. He's too dominant. He's too powerful. Um, we need an opponent. That's how we came up with the whole Kane thing and, and that storyline so we can segue from the championship to a personal issue with him. Um it was, I just thought that the story all the way through, when people talk about Bret Hart telling a story in the ring, this is a great example of, of Bret telling a story in the ring. I love the, putting the sharpshooter on the ring post on the outside of the ring, the figure four leg lock on the outside around the post that Bret used to do. Everything about it, the subtleties with Sean as the referee, Again, uh, to perfection. And I don't know that he was supposed to spit at him at the chest. I don't know where the hell that comes from. But both of those guys knew knew what the hell was coming. And, and it was, you know, everyone was playing well together at that time. There is a spot in Wrestling with Shadows where you see Brett and Pat Patterson talking in the ring about how Sean is going to cost Undertaker the match and Sean's going to turn heel. And Brett makes a comment. It was almost like Sean is taking all of his heat. Did he express that to you? Yeah. Brett always thought everybody was taking his heat. Wasn't just Sean. It was anybody that that got heat. I think Brett felt that, that everybody was, was taking his heat. If, you know, Pillman went out and did something too much. It's like, Brian's trying to steal my heat. Um, the, the story at the time in, in this time frame was, you know, we're going to get with Brett. Brett's going to get the title. We're going to go with Sean and take her in a non-title match to get to Brett and the championship at Survivor Series and be able to debut Kane. There were, there were a lot of other things going on other than Brett Hart. So it's like, you know, it, it doesn't all have to be about Brett. The next night, of course, Michaels is getting huge heat on raw and fans are booing him and Meltzer even reports. Apparently Michael's knee is far worse than most people thought, including us. According to Dr. James Andrews, who is the most noted knee specialist in the country. He claimed from an exam this past week that Michael's knee is so bad that virtually any doctor would recommend he retire from wrestling. He has serious arthritis in the knee and his ACL is very close to going out. The belief now is that Michael's knee is such that he'll never be able to work a full-time wrestling schedule again, but he is going to be used on major arena shows and will mainly do interviews and angles on television with the occasional match. 
any sort of hesitation and betting on Sean here because he has sort of been for lack of a better word, unreliable up until this point in the year. And at the same time, we've got, I don't know, concerns as to whether or not he'll do business because he's in this feud with Brent Hart. If you know that there, all of this, there was is- no concern about him doing business. Okay. That there was it, this time there was no concern whatsoever about him doing business at all. Well, this, and, is, this is a guy who, as we've talked about before, what uh, has said, Hey, I won't put you over, which again, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. He, he did it to poke the bear. He did it to stir bread up. And again, push come to shove. Sean would have put him over. I know he would have, but that was done to poke the bear and to get a rise out of Brett. And he did, and he got exactly the reaction he was looking for. He stirred shit up. Help me understand. You say, I know he would have, but he didn't at WrestleMania 13. He wasn't scheduled to at WrestleMania 13. Yes, he was. No, he, no, he didn't. You're right. And he didn't, but I'm saying again, you're talking time frames at this time frame, there was confidence. There was confidence on Vince's part. And that's really all that mattered at that point. Was I comfortable? No, I wasn't comfortable. I wanted to play with the players that we had that we could put on TV and on pay-per-views that we could book in house shows and draw money and to have a primary television talent that you can only book in, in major, uh, arenas and, and, and major house shows, it hindered booking and it hindered, you know, the way that we were doing business at the time. Vince was confident. That's what Vince wanted to do. So that's what we did. Um, express my concerns and moved on and you do what's in front of you and what you're told to do, make it work. Well, let's make it work with some questions. we got tons of questions on social media. Bruce, let's rapid fire these. Are you ready? Go. Kenny wants to know, did Sean lobby to go heel or was it a Vince call? Oh, that was a Vince call. That was our call to turn Sean heel. He was a better heel. Curtis wants to know, was Bulldog okay after Ken Shamrock absolutely waffled the piss out of him with the can of dog food? Uh, I think Bulldog was hurt up a little bit. Yeah, I think he... What the fuck? The fuck with the goddamn can? Wait, yeah, he was where was Bulldog? What do you mean, where was Bulldog? He wasn't fucking there. Thank fuck. You. the fuck where was he? <laughs> Huh. Oh, fuck. I wasn't even fucking there. They gave me with a fucking can in the back of the fucking head. I love it. First, you're like, I don't know. One, two. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, Derek Brooks wants to know, was Brett's loogie to Sean's face a shoot loogie or a working loogie? He got those at loogies are us. Brett could spit, man. That's the one thing that motherfucker could do. He could spit some fucking loogies. You know, this is something that we haven't really talked about a lot, but had the creative here, which I really enjoyed been different you wouldn't have had to sit him down a month later and tell him you couldn't afford him and three months later fuck him out of the belt okay he fucked himself out of the belt we didn't fuck anybody out of the belt i'm just saying like you wouldn't have ever even been in this situation had you not put the belt on him here well again we didn't (laughs) vince had confidence that he thought that brett would agree to less money and take some, you know, give him some relief. I, I think that Vince felt confident 
it was all going to work out. And he didn't make the decision to cut the contract till after this. Let me ask you a real question. I'm not trying to be funny here. Vince McMahon comes to Brett in September and says, can't afford your contract. He comes back in October and says, I found the money. There's a month time span there where, in my opinion, he probably realized some of the, you know, reallocation as Bischoff, I'd like to say, because you've, you've adjusted your travel schedule. You've adjusted your taping schedule. You've adjusted your pay-per-view pricing. So you've made three fairly significant moves that we know about and untold other moves I'm sure of, but this is a, a result of events sort of hitting the panic button in July. Had he hit that button the first week of April, do you think he ever would have went to Brett and said, can't afford your contract? I don't know if he would have ever made the contract again. I think that the, you know, even going back to the contract, I think that it was a knee jerk reaction to, oh my God, I can't lose. I can't lose Bret Hart. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because on the other show, 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff, Bischoff contends he never offered Brett a contract in the fall of 96. Well, you know what? Um, Bret Hart says he did, and we definitely had different things to go off of. So if, if he didn't, then we got work pretty good by Brett and Eric. So, um, that's what we were negotiating, negotiating against. And we had been told, you know, it was a $3 million contract. Let me pitch this in order for them to sort of switch gears inside of a month from I can't afford it to I found the money September to October. Doesn't it stand within reason that if he would have made those adjustments as far as travel and taping and pay-per-view pricing, had he made those adjustments in April rather than July, he, all that could have been avoided. I, who knows? I mean, that's all ifs it's all hypothetical. I, who knows? We made what we did. We were presented with the situation. Vince made the decision to go to Brett, ask for relief and let him know the situation that he was in. And when he did that out of loyalty to Brett to say, Hey, Brett, if you can't give me the relief, I will let you out of your contract. Go get the money. If it's about the money, go get the money from WCW. Use us against them. And I will give you that ability to go and negotiate with them, which, which is what he did. Brian homeboy wants to know, did WWE ever consider having Kane debut at this pay-per-view? That's sort of an nope. interesting idea because if Sean wasn't the special guest referee, I guess in theory, you could have had Kane debut cost the undertaker, the match, and then they're off to the races. Yeah, we, I mean, we could have, but no, it wasn't considered because we wanted to get as much as we could out of undertaker and Kane, frankly, there were already you know, as I said, there, there was a story, Brett and Sean, there was a story, Sean and Brett, and there's a story, Taker and, and Sean. And then you also had over here, Kane. So there's a lot of stories to tell. Uh, Scott O'Brien wants to know, Bruce, which steel cage do you prefer old big blue or the ones they use today? I prefer the, uh, cyclone fence, the chain link. Uh, Paul wants to know undertaker hit Brett with a big boot followed by a leg drop. Is that a rib? Why is that a rib? Travis, what he did. Travis wants to know the main event was probably one of the best finishes of any match ever. This is a Pat Patterson special. Is it not? 
Yeah, it definitely was, man. Uh, Michael wants to know, Bruce has mentioned former wrestlers who have great a who have been great agents, but horrible as members of creative and vice versa. If you were hiring, what qualities would you list that makes someone a great agent? Someone that knows how to tell a good story and can articulate it. Um, Peter wants to know better dancer. Is it Sean Bruce or Conrad? What a stupid fucking question. It's me by far heads and tails twice on Sunday. Well, just so you know, I have won a dance contest recently. Well, you know what? Uh, it's on, I challenge you October 13th. Is that right? Oh no. I was thinking we were going to do it in New York because we got tickets on sale right now at bruceprichard.com. You know what? It's on New York city, Gramercy theater, August 18th live. I'm in, I ain't scared I'm of shit, but yeah, that's I, right. I'm winning. They call you know what? They call me Mr. Boogie nights. I'm ready. I ain't scared. Oh, uh, uh, you look scared. Dalton wants to know, how did Bruce feel about being on camera during the main event? There's scenes of him and wrestling with shadows at gorilla reacting to the chair shot. Uh, by that time, you know, I, you don't even realize you're on camera. A lot of times you just get used to the cameras being around. I could care less. Mike Morris says since the creation of DX and rise of Austin bucking, the system was the aftermath of this show. Could one say that SummerSlam 97 is the true start of the attitude era? Yes. Justin wants to know Vader was wrestling the undertaker for the WWF championship on the pay-per-view before this, yet he wasn't even on the card. Why is that? You know what? It may have been because of the Sid thing that that may have been what we had planned. Like you said, but I just don't remember. Sean writes, how high was the company on Ken Shamrock at this point? Was he being groomed to be a top guy? We were try still trying to figure out what we had there with Ken. And at that point, man, he was delivering. Uh, Clinton writes, Brett, Sean, and Taker are magic together. Are they not? This pay-per-view rocked. Fucking a great shit. Steven wants to know with all the stipulations on the show, it sounds like a Russo rific book show. Had Vince Russo become the head writer officially by this point? And if not, when would you say was the first pay-per-view booked under the Russo era? God, I, I really don't know what the first pay-per-view would have been, but no, it was, it was still, uh, me and Cornette and Russo was definitely involved and, and Russo had a lot of great ideas and was contributing big time during this. And obviously Vince McMahon, but uh, I was still involved at this point. Geoff wants to know what are your favorite theme songs? Besides ass man. Sure. Um, God, I don't know. I think Austin, you know, you go back in, in Austin, uh, ultimate warrior, the ones that really just do the talent justice. Let's talk about, um, Jim Johnston, I guess now's as good a time of any to mention. I mean, you haven't talked about this, but I managed to talk Jim Johnston out of his hidey hole because he's basically a recluse, as you know, and he's actually going to join us at Starcast. He's going to be doing something with Sean Mooney. We're calling behind the themes and he's going to take us through the creative process. What, what can you tell us about Jim Johnson? I've never actually met him in real life. Quirky's a good way to describe Jim Johnston. Um, Jim is one of those quiet, uh, geniuses that is very sensitive. And if you don't like his work, you have to be very careful in how you tell him. I, I didn't particularly care for that, Jim. 
where there were days sometimes I would go off of Vince's cue. It's just like, God, Jim, that sucked. That was the worst piece of shit I ever heard in my life. What the fuck are you trying to accomplish there? Or Vince would just do, damn, what the hell were you smoking, pal? And Jim would take it very personal. Even when we were like just fucking with him, uh, he would take it very personal, but he is one of the most talented some bitches you, you will ever want to meet. And one of those guys that you can tell him something and then he can conceptualize it in his brain and it can come out in his fingertips into a guitar in a song, almost simultaneous. Can you believe I was able to land him? No, I can't because hell, I just took me forever just to get him on the phone. I started working on him in February. It took months and months and months. Uh, and I'm pretty confident we'll never see him ever again after this, but. Oh yeah. Him. After you just, yeah, he'll, he'll run and hide and his wife won't even find him. Well, so there you go. Uh, catch us. If you can't make it to Starcast. you don't want to miss this. You can pre-order it on fight right now. Fight.tv forward slash Starcast. Uh, Jeff Taylor writes, this is the final appearance for Todd Pettengill. Can we get an impression from Bruce? And what does Bruce think of Todd? I thought Todd was an excellent, uh, commentator, not a commentator. I thought he was an excellent, excellent interviewer. Todd knew his job, knew how to get talent over. I can't do a Pettengill imitation at all. Pettengill does some of the best imitations I've ever heard of a lot of different people. Very, very talented guy. I believe he's still on the radio in New York city today, but, uh, I was sad when Todd left because I thought he added an awful lot to the product. And when he left, by the way, he was only 31 years old. That's pretty crazy when you think about it, is it not? Yeah, but he, he was, he was very creative and, and, um, and just a great guy, but he, he was excellent at what he did and you didn't have to continually produce him. You gave him the idea of what you wanted and he knew how to get talent over. Well, and we know how to get guys over here on something to wrestle. If you haven't already, what are you waiting for? Go check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. We've got more bonus content for you right now. And next week we've got coming your way. Hogan's 1989. We've already covered a lot of this with our mega powers explode episode and no holds barred. If we need to, we might venture over into 1990, but we're going to get a whole bunch of Hulk Hogan coming your way next week. And of course, the week after that, it's all about SummerSlam. We put it to a poll and let our, uh, our patrons take a vote. Bruce, how excited are you for us to cover a SummerSlam? I'm very excited and I want it to be SummerSlam 1988. Damn it. <laughs> hit, hit, hit. You realize that the polls are closed, right? Listen, Conrad. <laughs> We, we can keep it open. No, we can't keep it open. Seven more weeks. <laughs> SummerSlam 1998 won in first place. SummerSlam but 1988 came in second place. So that's what you've got coming your way. Let's go ahead and give you those dates again. Next Friday, that's right, on the 10th. It's all about Hulk Hogan's 1989. On the 17th, we're covering... Highway to Hell, the 20-year anniversary of SummerSlam 1998 from Madison Square Garden. On the 24th, we're covering the very first SmackDown, and then we'll finish up August on the 31st with SummerSlam 1988. So there you go. You're getting what you want. You just got to wait a little while to get there. What might we talk about? 
SummerSlam 1998 in two weeks. Well, in 98, I think the one thing <laughs> that, that sits, and, and this little behind the scenes, but for me, it's just that moment, was Vince McMahon and them taping me sitting in the arena all by myself while Undertaker and Steve Austin are in the ring going over the match. And they're, they're discussing the match, and they're playing Highway to Hell on the PA system. And I am just totally into myself singing Highway to Hell as if I'm just the man. And I am oblivious to everything going on around me. And apparently they had a camera on me, and everybody was watching. And everybody and everything at the ring had stopped. And Vince had pointed everyone my way. So that's just kind of, that's my memory. Uh, I remember the match just, you know, it was what it was. But, um wasn't what we thought it would be when we originally booked it. Well, we're looking forward to booking with you next week, Bruce. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. If you've got a question for us, by all means, hit us on Twitter. We are at Pritchard show. We're also on Instagram at Pritchard show. Please subscribe to our YouTube. It's absolutely free. It's something to wrestle.com. And of course, as always, you should support our sponsors. And we've got a link for that in our show description. We get lots of questions. Hey, what was the code for this or that? Go back and check out your descriptions. A lot of times those codes are right there. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. You know something, Bruce and Conrad? You're ready to talk about Hulk Hogan's 1989, brother. It was one hell of a year where the mega powers exploded, man. I got Randy so mad that he thought I was going after his chick. He thought I had lust in my eyes, brother. And he's going to come after me, dude. You're going to find out what happens at WrestleMania when we go head-to-head, brother. Bruce Pritchard, brother Bruce, how many times are you going to do your terrible Macho Man impression, brother? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't want to hear that voice either. Yeah, I've been listening to this show from up in heaven. Yeah, and I don't want to hear anymore. Brother Love doing the Macho Man impression. No. That's not a good voice. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, Hogan, by the way, stop looking at Liz with lust in your eyes. Put the thermos away, brother. Oh, yeah. This is just Terry right now, man. And that's Hogan's thermos. You got to know the difference, brother. It's going to be the largest podcast in the world, brother. When we talk about Hulk Hogan's 1989, dude. Anyway, brother, I got to go back to the basement of ADC on the ADC's A Wrestling Podcast to hang out with Doc Hendricks. Stone Cold Steve Austin. What? The Undertaker, brother. Rest in peace. And everybody else over on that show where they talk about everything that's happening in the current product brother with lots of voices like this dude oh, hell what yeah. you gonna do when the adc's are wrestling it's something to wrestle run wild on you john brings his skewed sense of humor jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.